Girls Gone canon. We are reading La Belle Sauvage of The Books of Dust, episode 4, chapters 9 through 11. And I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe, and I am so excited to be covering these three chapters because this is when it gets real. This is like, it's happening. It is getting more tension. Things are building up. Action's happening. The hyena is back. Uh, Mm. It's happening. It it feels a lot's happening. We have chapter 9, Counterclockwise, chapter 10, Lord Asriel, and chapter 11, Three Legs. And a lot happens in these three chapters. Like some of it, you know, we're we're moving out of the exposition to like really setting up, setting up the plot, setting up some of the characters, giving a few nods to some of the things in the main series of His Dark Materials. But it's been good. I am excited to dive deeper into La Belle Sauvage. And not only is La Belle Sauvage good, but if you're following other things happening at Girls Gone Canon, his Dark Materials series two is good. It is good. Good things are happening. I can tell you, fully esteemed. I have not seen episode six, Malice, yet, but episode five, The Scholar, was uh, wow. Yeah. It was wow. It was a lot to take in. I haven't rewatched it for a second time at the time of this recording, but I will be tomorrow, and I'm excited for that. I was so blindsided by all of the craziness happening in it and some of the really cool inventiveness going on with the plot, and I do not say that sarcastically. Like, I mean that seriously. It was so crazy. Stuff I did not think was going to happen happened, and it was awesome. I love that they're blowing me away, so make sure you're checking those out. Absolutely. We might reference the show a little bit today. Not a lot, but just a tiny bit. I think we will. There's a couple of things in the show that have helped set context for some of these chapters. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and as of the time of recording, same, I have not yet seen episode six, but we have seen episode five. And just like, there's just so many things that are so strong about the show. And like the characters, it not only is it like they're, they're adapting the storyline well and coming up with these different ways or plots, interpretations of like how they're doing this adaptation. But I think that there's like a lot of care given to it visually right they're not just letting all the words carry the story and and we talk about this during our coverage of the show that the visual storytelling is really strong there's something that i'm super excited to cover that happened in episode five it's like my favorite thing ever it's so small but i love it and um i just love seeing you excited about things i know i was like is this what joy (laughs) feels like i mean i think i forgot i legit forgot what it felt like to like be this excited about something a thing yeah yeah is this depression i don't know you know pandemic life bruh but i i think we have at least you know there's a lot uh for those of you that are song of ice and fire friends as well as his dark material friends We'd love A Song of Ice and Fire, right? If you haven't read the series, we do recommend it. It's a lot, but we're here to hold your hands through all of it. So feel free to reach out to us and hit us an email or message whenever we're available. But Historic Materials has felt like a total reprieve, right? Like a total just sanctuary, so to say, of just like sometimes when I I need to just read something and feel whole or broken depending on which book you're reading and if it's the amber spyglass uh, I love, uh, someone called us out they're like you're gonna stop talking about it because we're breaking people's hearts but it's not our fault 
He wrote it. Our Philip Pullman wrote this. Too. I did not write this, and the showrunners of the His Dark Materials show know how to give it to us, that's for sure. So check it out. I'm excited for the finale. Mm. It's uh, it's entitled after The Knife, The Subtle Knife, Isahitra. Isahitra? Depending. Isahitra? I don't it, it really depends, but we're going to have a guest on. Oh, we are. And I'm so, speaking of things that are excited, you know, we're not the only ones enjoying this adaptation of the show. We are going to be joined by our friend, Cam, Candid59, on Twitter and Tumblr, if we're not mistaken. This is so exciting because they are sad about Will and Lyra. They're <laughs> sad about Will and Lyra so much, just like us. That's what we do every week here, every sad. Monday. We get sad. Uh, actually, yeah, actually, many times a week together. Most days of the week, we are sad together, and well, we get happy, and then we get sad immediately after. Yeah, like within a three second, it's a lot of emotional whiplash. That's that's how I describe the podcast. A lot of oh emotional whiplash. It's not untrue. <laughs> but no, Canada Fifty Nine Cam. She is very insightful. She's very aligned with some of our thoughts about the books of dust for example and with the show often so i'm very excited just to discuss everything in fact i'm out here like is this a third host is mm. this we should see if she's a sagittarius <sighs> we gotta find that out first question if cam is a sagittarius fingers crossed third host but you know what we have two more chances <laughs> after that because we have one more guest joining us before the year is up before we destroy god in 2020 you know what i mean <laughs> uh we're gonna be joined for our patreon special episode we do a patron special episode for our five dollar and above tier over at patreon.com slash girls gone canon this month's is his dark materials themed and the dust podcast is joining us to break down some of the music of His Dark Materials yes. and some of the music that is inspired by His Dark Materials. We're going to talk about our favorite moments from the series. Some songs with some lyrics, some mixtapes. There's going to be a playlist for our patrons oh to God. download. Yeah, that's, that's big. So There's exciting. going to be a playlist. You can hear some of Lauren Belt's amazing pieces that he's composed and that have been performed gorgeously, especially from series two. But also in this playlist, you're going to have some fan picks, some friend picks, things that we talk about that make us feel things. Uh, we're here to get through the winter together, the His Dark Materials long night. And we're going to cover a little bit of this in some ways, not in the way that you think in this episode, but maybe we'll even throw on Kate Bush's Lyra. 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 Speaking of which, um, and the story of Lyra. And speaking of the story of Lyra, in terms of what we are covering in this episode, we are, of course, going through the Books of Dust, and we are doing this read-through a little bit similarly to how we did the His Dark Materials one, but because this is kind of a sequel series in some ways, also a sandwich series, we are covering <laughs> material from all three of the His Dark Materials books, so... That's Northern Light slash The Golden Compass, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass. We will be referencing that throughout all of this episode. But things about The Secret Commonwealth, which is book two of The Book of Dust, will not necessarily be uh, discussed very explicitly in this episode, but will be in a discussion at the end. Yes, we will have a discussion today, my favorite time of the day of the month, <laughs> so I'm excited for that. 
get hyped for that. I was Just allowed a to peek. Small I was allowed to peek this one. Yeah. Yeah. We'll let Aliana in. She can come on in. The water's warm. You know what I mean? Father Tam's water. It's warm. Did a hyena pee in it? Oh, see, we went two directions. You went hyena, I went Father Thames. Well, they're both very different directions. <laughs> well, speaking of Just different like directions, that brings us to Chapter 9, Counterclockwise, where Malcolm has arrived at Hannah Ralph's house and has lots to tell her. Eric's father proclaimed the murdered man was a spy. The League of St. Alexander is uprising, and the Priory of course, has some drama going on, right? Because Miss Carmichael, who's heading the League of St. Alexander, was also at the Priory. But more had happened since that. The day after the assembly at school, the headmaster forbade all the students from wearing their League badges. He said, the form you signed had no legal force and you can wear them at home. The day that followed that, the headmaster disappeared and the deputy headmaster, Mr. Hawkins, He's taken over. He allowed the children to wear the badges. Actually, he kind of encouraged it. Yeah, so we discussed this a little bit towards the end of the previous episode of La Belle Sauvage. And you're going to see this as we talk about what happens in this chapter, but we're really seeing that that big degradation of societal trust between the adults and the children at the school. And, uh, you know, a lot of the ways that the systems in uh, Lyra's world, in the His Dark Materials world, kind of upholds some things that are really harmful, but here we're seeing a different kind of destruction of of these societal systems, right? With that Mm -hmm. trust and and the empowerment of ignorance uh, from the children. We're getting something that I think feels a little bit like uh, the sort of tyranny that was happening in in Chittagatse, but here with the children inside the school and their own running amok, their own sort of Lord of the Flies as they enforce it on the adults around them. But what's really interesting is that usage, I think, here of that term legal force um, and and the lack of really any specifications around it, but that use and force of power there, right? What the children are doing, it's not like children actually intrinsically have more power than adults. Like that's, we've all like grown up Right, we have all been children and kind of know that from our own experiences, but it's enforceable here because the children have a different power behind them, right? And it kind of creates an illusion for the children where they're kind of getting drunk on this power, right? But the real power isn't them, it's someone else pulling the strings, and that in turn creates a system in which someone is exerting power over both the children and controlling them, and therefore able to control the adults that they're around. It's really interesting, and it creates a sort of a panopticon, right? This this idea of a, of a state or a surveillance state um, in which you're sort of always being observed and and that the threat of that right it's like all this talk going on of the uh like china's social profile for Mm. example going on and the talk of introducing a social credit system and it also reminds me a little wild right it's it's a little crazy stuff going on Uh, but also these couple of chapters have some heavy subtle knife vibes and i never picked up on it the mm. first read through, second read through, I didn't really get it. But now in this slow reread, I'm like, oh, wow, a lot of subtle knife going on, especially with that children parallel. That's great. I did not think about that the first time through. Hannah asks Malcolm how his teachers have been taking this entire situation. And he says, ah, it's a mixed bag, Hannah Ralph. 
The math teacher calls it a celebration of nasty, rotten little sneak who got his parents killed. Some of the children saw things differently after the math teacher said this. They were like, eh, maybe I don't need the badge, but the rest don't want to be reported, so they keep wearing them. Malcolm thinks that at this time, about half of the children have joined and half haven't. And he is in the have-not category, of course. Of course. We get this line. It had occurred to Malcolm already, and it came back to him now, that what he was doing in talking to Dr. Ralph was very like what St. Alexander was celebrated for. What was the difference? Only that he liked and trusted Dr. Ralph, but he was no less a spy for that. And, you know, I think it's a little more complicated than the explanation they go into here, right? Where, you know, mm-hmm. Hannah notices he's uncomfortable and tells him, you know, she knows, she gets it, but what they're differing, what they're doing has to be different because it's for good. And I'm like, yeah, well, I think that they think that what they're doing is for good, too. It's a little, it's a little too simplistic of an explanation, but, like, the, the foundations of what is going on are here in the text. Yeah, everyone that she is working for claims to be against the consistorial court of discipline, right? Against murdering people, against the League of St. Alexander. And she vows to learn more about what's going on with Miss Carmichael and this whole League thing and baby Lyra, but for now turns to quantum physics. Yeah, and part of why I say that I think it's a little more complex is, you know, in our A Song of Ice and Fire read-through right now, we are going through the Davos chapters, and we're seeing a lot of uh, these questions about belief and faith and what's right, what's good, whether or not murdering people is good or bad, and that sort of arising as a sort of ethical question within Stannis' storyline and Melisandre's storyline. So that's why I'm just like, I don't think it's it's as cut and dry as what Hannah is saying. I agree that they are, of course, for good, but... The explanations she gives to Malcolm are, I think, a little lacking, but also he's like 10 years old. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of it, right? 11 years old, you have to kind of choose your battles a little bit. I don't yeah. mean in a cruel way, I just mean... Yeah. there's only It's like a sponge. Your brain is a sponge, even as an adult. That's you can only absorb true. so effing much a day, I was gonna say, day, full okay? of holes. <laughs> Absolutely, it's porous. So many things... I'm serious. No, I'm not kidding. It's yeah. just like your hair. Did you know hair is the same way? Your hair can only absorb so much. Your follicles, hmm. when uh, when you dye your hair red or you dye your hair blue, it fades faster because the molecules of blue and red are larger than they would be of brown or yellow. Huh. It's easier to fall out of your follicle. Your hair follicle, depending on how damaged it is, it opens like a pine cone and certain molecules are big enough or small enough to fit in. So red and blue molecules, they're far too large and they just fall straight off your follicle. So that's how that works. Interesting. Yeah, that's why it fades so fast. Or like when you go in a pool, you have a chemical reaction to that hair color because those molecules are like, peace, motherfucker, I want to get out of the hair follicle. Huh. Yeah. Science, bitch. I know it. Yeah. And so does uh, (laughs) Hannah, but in a different way. Yeah, quantum physics, maybe. I guess it's different than hair cosmetology allegedly allegedly so yeah we follow hannah and her own studies seeing her next few days she has been searching for left luggage boxes for use and after finding a dozen she goes back to her bodleian library console harry dibden with a cataloging (laughs) query and this little bird demon 
Yes, I like that we talked about little cute Harry Dibden last time, but, you know, this week I recently attended Blackwell's did an event with Philip Pullman, where he chatted with a person from their event team, Sean, and mentioned he's done a lot of research for the original trilogy in the Bodleian Library. That often Pullman would go to that library, look things up, and read things, and it just feels so nice to see Hannah revisiting this library, right? Like, it's magical. You know that Pullman was thinking of as many times writing the original trilogy here. Yes, interesting. Absolutely. And uh, he himself studying, finding magic. Place. Him checking up and entering cataloging requests for the alethiometer. Oh, I love that. Harry Dibden is glad to see Hannah. He announces they found her a very new insulator just in time because things are heating up. He has children, and they start to discuss this whole League of St. Alexander thing. He forbade his children from joining, but he knew very little about it, imagining it was the usual sources, which implies the CCD. She tells him what Malcolm told her. He ends up warning her to look after that boy because he worries about him, which Eliana and I... Agree. I worry about there. Him too. There are many things I worry about regarding Malcolm, um, <laughs> but yes, many, I do. Many of them. I, yes, and she should be worried about him, right? He's in quite the jaws of danger at school, and Hannah assures him that she will do what she can. Hands him a list of the new drop points, and then they part. The report she made to drop in the left luggage box came to about four pages, written on the very special India paper, and it just. Barely folds small enough to get into the little acorn. She <laughs> hides it in the botanic garden in a left luggage box under a gnarly root and goes back to the alethiometer research for the day because she has a deadline coming up. And if that's not relatable, anyway, she's got a monthly research focus group. She needed to bring something, anything to, or risk losing privileges. And she's just like, fuck, I've been busy doing spy stuff. But that's the thing. She has to keep access to the alethiometer, right? For the spy stuff. Uh, there's a lot of tension there. I definitely think it's significant. There's a left luggage box in the botanic garden oh. at a tree root. And it's probably just a little nod, right? It's Pullman being playful. Being like, ho oh, oh, ho, it's the garden. Here's the bench for those and of us tree. that have read the main trilogy. Yes, the tree. But I also love the way... This is way back in the Northern Lights, where Lyra speaks about everything in the city of Oxford, almost like this giant fungal connection Mm. of roots and tree roots, and it reminds me of that. Lyra thinks, Like some enormous fungus whose root system extended over acres, Jordan, finding itself jostling for space above ground with St. Michael's College on one side, Gabriel College on the other, and the university library behind had begun, sometime in the Middle Ages, to spread below the surface. Tunnels, shafts, vaults, cellars, staircases had so hollowed out the earth below Jordan, and for several hundred yards around it that there was almost as much air below ground as above. Jordan College stood on a sort of broth of stone. Interesting. Yes, I love that it's an interconnected web, though, right? Everything is connected by matter. Mm-hmm. The Just roots like they, touch uh, it all. This little web made out of people trying to do, trying to fight for good. Mm-hmm. 
By Tuesday, the deputy headmaster announces Headmaster Willis will not be returning. Lol. No way. <laughs> and uh, now Mr. Hawkins is just the headmaster, and all the students know why, of course. The badge wearers have a giddy sense of power, and the teachers all know that no one is safe now. We have a line. Mr. Savory put his head in his hands. Miss Davis bit her lip. Mr. Croker, the woodwork teacher, looked angry. Some of the others gave little triumphant smiles. Most were expressionless. Most gotta pay their bills. Uh, something really stood out to me this read about how the League of St. Alexandria kids, they're called badge wearers. Mm. It reminds me of the guild of the Tour d'Angeli in Chitagatsi. Uh, having privileges and being called the badge wearers of the subtle knife of Isahir. The bearer, uh, yeah. Yeah, the bearer. Malcolm in this position is kind of like Will in that he doesn't want to wear the badge for the same reasons that other kids or guild men would want it. When you look at the kids in Chirigatse, you look at Angelica and Paolo and why they would want Tulio to have the knife and why they would want him to be the bearer. It's to protect them, but Malcolm, right, he he doesn't want to wear the badge to fit in with the other kids. He wants it to protect the people he loves uh, and cares about. And I I kind of thought about this. I never really saw it until now, but the badge wearers part about it felt really significant that they're wearing a badge. Yeah, that they're signaling something to everyone about this power that they have, Mm -hmm. right? It's supposed to be sort of like a way to, to build affinity, but for them, they're using it to signal power. And like, they are only kind of benefiting from that. They, well, they're also being exploited, but they don't know that. Whereas Will had to pay quite the price. Like, almost died in order to get his badge. And Malcolm's... You really gotta give Will a hand about wow. it. Wow! Wow! <laughs> Hire me! Wow! <laughs> <laughs> but that is the thing, right? Like, there's a lot at stake for Will and for Malcolm in comparison to mm-hmm. the kids of Shidagatse. Or the kids that are wearing the badge of the League of St. Alexander. And that's really apparent here. It stands out as a contrast. I mean, there's a lot at stake for the kids at Chittagatse, but... Yeah, absolutely. Those poor kids. Sorry, that was the show (laughs) version. (sighs) But the effects are immediate here, right? There's something that really shows across the ripple, across the teachers. There's a rumor that a scripture teacher from one of the older classes told a story about Moses parting the Red Sea, but was like, you know, more realistically, from a scientific approach, this could be analyzed this way. And a badge-wearing boy challenged this teacher and was like, I have a badge! And the teacher walked back the lesson immediately, saying, I'm just showing you an example of a very wicked lie, and you've caught me, and you've passed the lesson. You've passed it. Shit is getting a little tense at Wolvercoat, is what I'm trying to tell you. So this kind of reminds me of something. This is a an amusing anecdotal story, but about real life and things that are going on right now. Of um, in the Philippines, there's been a law passed, the anti-terrorism law, right, which uh, mm-hmm. sort of uh, is very much an act of government censorship that is clamping down on people critiquing the government, which is 
pretty terrifying, but someone was telling me about how they have friends who that they've seen, they'd be like, fuck Duterte is a bad thing to say and you should never say it. Or <laughs> Duterte is a son of a bitch is something that you shouldn't say under the new law. <laughs> it's like kind it's of clever. I kind of love it. I kind of love that. I, I, it's just very clever, you know. I just thought that was a cute story and would share no, it with cute. all of you. I think so. I think it's adorable. I, Except I for like the part the, where uh, people are being like censored and and yeah, the government is that, oppressing them. But if you ignore it, that, it's part, like when kids uh and you know it reminds me of the story we read. God, I don't know what grade I read this in. It's got to be younger, like fourth grade or some shit. But it was a story called Sink the Sub. Hmm. And it kind of, throughout this, we'll get some teacher stuff going on. Obviously, big folks on the teachers, as Pullman was a teacher, right, for a very long time. But this book basically was about these kids that had a substitute teacher, and they would play the game of sink the sub and, like, saying mean things to be like, haha, I got the substitute teacher, get him to cry, you know, get him to quit. And that feels very much like what some of these badge wearers are doing. Not in a, a, a normal way, though. Like, Sink the Sub was yeah. a wholesome game, goddammit, that I read as a 10-year-old. Uh, very wholesome. Probably not wholesome, actually, to make a grown adult cry. Because as a grown adult, I can tell you I cry very much. Yeah. And I can tell you. Uh, but there, there's a lot of Sink the Sub happening here. But with higher stakes. Very high stakes. And yeah. other teachers. Yeah, I think so. I think he's probably so. Read it. I, I imagine Pullman's probably read Sink the Sub. Maybe we'll tweet at him and find out. Because some of these other teachers are like immediately, they're like, water down my courses, right? The pressure is spreading and the students are getting pressured as well. Malcolm and many of the other children start to get asked, why aren't you wearing a badge? Are you an atheist? And when Malcolm is asked that, he says, I don't know. I'll think about it, you know, and he plays it off. Some children say, my parents won't let me join. But when the badge wearers smile and they're like, give me their names and addresses, the kids become frightened and they take a badge. So they're being pretty much frightened into it, whether they like it yeah. or not. Threatened, exploited, extorted. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Frightening. Forcing them to, to assimilate and become part of the system. Absolutely. And, you know, thankfully, you know, some of the teachers did hold out, right? Like Mr. Croker... His name doesn't bode well for him, but um, Malcolm stays after class to ask Mr. Croker about a wood screw question. But seeing that he's badgeless, has his woodpecker demon make some wood-eating cover-up noises while, you know, they have this secret conversation and he asks Malcolm, So Malcolm, why are you not wearing a badge? And Malcolm's just like, I don't like them. I don't like how they treat people. I'm not about that. And then he asks... You know, as as a child would if the old headmaster is coming back. And we're all just like, oh, sweetie. And Mr. Croker says he hopes so, which is nice, but... A lie. It is a He might really lie. hope so, but... I mean, he probably hopes so. He, that's his job, man. That's his paycheck. And I think the woodpecker here... Shout out to Jack Thorne. Jack Thorne, who's mm. writing for the HDM series, uh... His demon, I believe, is a woodpecker, but hmm. Mr. Croker here, his demon's a woodpecker making this white noise, a silent noise in the background, and it's very clever. 
given the whole spy environment that we started to put Malcolm into now, I think oh. it's a clever use of noise. In the next chapter, we actually have Asriel having a conversation that Malcolm can't hear. So here, Malcolm's having a conversation no onlooker, no normal student would be able to hear. And I really just like the, the use of concealing things from people in the story so far. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't catch that in that connection. That's a great point. And, and he's picking up, he's picking up skills, you know? Yeah. And he doesn't want Mr. Croker to be in trouble. So he's like, oh, here, here's my real question, Mr. Croker. Uh, and he's all asking about his wood screw, right? This is the wood screw Mr. Taphouse and him talked about. And he was all like, I'm going to figure it out, Mr. Taphouse. Uh, but Mr. Croker is like, it exists already, Malcolm. And he shows Malcolm oh. the tool. And Malcolm's all excited. And he's almost like fucking up with the tool, like trying to use it. And he, he's like, uh, oh, this reminds me of the acorn. But he stops himself before he gives it away. And Mr. Croker is like, well, Malcolm, you know what? I don't think I have much time left in this school. So here's my tools. And I think that they should go to a good home. You have a good day now, Malcolm. You go off, young boy. Yes. And also because he's probably like, wow, this kid's just like way more excited about nails. than (laughs) This kid cares about things. (laughs) Than anyone would. Absolutely. (laughs) And... You know, this is, I think, a very literal uh, manifestation of the title of this chapter, counterclockwise, right, referring to all this. And it also kind of, I think, speaks to what's going on, right, with Malcolm. He's moving in the opposite direction as the other children who are in the League of St. Alexander. It's tied together with, yes, this motion of moving in that opposite direction and also this tool that spins counterclockwise and and the acorn as a tool of intelligence. And by intelligence, I mean spycraft and that even on like the surface right malcolm does seem to be doing something very similar to the children in the league but he's not he's doing something that is in fact quite different and i think we talked a little bit about that last chapter and it's really just a bummer to watch it happen because it's like watching the corruption spread and rot right and rot out Mm -hmm. from the root like mr croker and miss davis are gone by the end of the week it's like Monday, That's so sad. Miss Davis was earliest. so soft. She's both of them are soft. I feel so bad for Miss Davis, especially because the boys were like, "She's emotional and weird and angry," and I'm like, "Same, motherfucker." No, <laughs> they're like, I can't uh, imagine her being a spy, and I'm like, "Yeah, she's done nothing to deserve any of this." It's interesting because there's a huge assembly. By the end of the week, where Mr. Hawkins is pleading, begging the other kids, like, please, let's allow normalcy to return. Please stop this turnover, a.k.a. making me fire these people. And And have to hire new people. Dude, that's not fucking easy. Especially not in the face of this environment. Like, would you want to start substituting? What are the benefits? The children will eat you up. No, I'm they not are going to take that a job. fucking sink the sub mission. I don't want to work here. And some no. badge wearers are like, we're going to push on. We're going to report Mr. Hawkins. And then some of the other group, right? Like they've kind of started their own, dis- their own division, which is, I guess, kind of a look at Magisterium and CCD, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of like the whole joke that these two sections of badge wearers have broken up and they're ready to push on. They're holding the line and... Some of the teachers stay, but a lot of these kids end up prevailing to get some of these teachers, you know, to quit. Yeah, or or in getting them to admit 
what they've done wrong or whatever. And I think it's interesting that you have some that's split between the children. Yeah. You're starting to see like how the magisterium happens with all those competing like departments like in miniature here, both in the stature of the children and in the size. Um, anyways, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I realized I was like, oh, that's kind of a pun, right? Anyways, um, the use of the zealotry is happening in just like the worst ways possible for some of them who maybe really do believe. And I think it's likely in response to the way that the educators write. I think that there's a lot of this section of the book that is inspired by like some of the stuff we saw going on in the aughts. It's still going on now, but like that, you know, Philip Pullman's very, very much against in response to the way that educators had been forced to like, you know, include things like creationism, right? Or or got criticism for not teaching creationism or teaching evolutionary theory um, in school curriculums and that sort of backlash um, in general amongst conservative groups. Yeah, it's pretty significant here. And these actions don't actually get anyone fired, right? But they do get two or three teachers to, like, stand up in front of all the kids, publicly apologize to the students in assembly, and beg for forgiveness. Were this not a huge kind of offensive religious thing going on, being pushed by the government, it would make me laugh because it reminds me of how uh, Les Miserables Kind of works out. Hmm. You have this plot in Les Miserables where all the little people, a lot of young people, and of course downtrodden people, and people that have been fucked over by the government consistently saying that the world is big but little people turn it around. Mm. And here, these little people are like, we're going to change the world in a really horrible, awful direction. And they're the most easily exploitable resource here. These kids are being exploited so hard, but they feel like they're being special. That is so bolded in this text. Yes, absolutely. And that's a great that's a great connection. Um to Les Miserables there. Uh I don't know it as well except for, I don't know, like the sad songs of and rain will make the flowers grow. That's like the only thing I remember. Right, the and teeth that, thing too. Yeah. yeah, then I just feel sad. Oh, and and Master of the House. Um, anyways. <laughs> yeah, great. That's great. And also, um, you know, later at the pub, right, uh, Malcolm is called up by his father to recant his tales of some of the parents that had gathered and are having similar responses, even at other schools. So it's interesting that we're seeing that this is not just in Malcolm's school. He Malcolm tells his father what he can, though it is limited, as they won't tell him all of the details of what's going on until he decides to get a badge, but that teachers and parents, some of them, have actually been taken, just like George Boatwright disappeared. And he had thought about wearing a badge and getting some insider info so that he could help Hannah Ralph more, but then he was like, I don't really want to like do all the work that goes into that, like going to church meetings all the time and spending all that time there, so I'm not gonna... <laughs> mood. That is a mood. And he doesn't have to, right? Because his friend Eric has not changed one bit. He uh-huh. has taken up a badge, and Malcolm is easily able to manipulate some information out of Eric. And he's all like, I want to join. And Eric's like, okay, sure, man. <laughs> and Malcolm's like, how do I join? Who do I report someone to? Like, Mr. Johnson, who's a really pious, not a great candidate <laughs> for reporting, right? Like, just a teacher that's really pious. And Eric's like, you have to have sound reasoning, and you have to write it on a piece of paper and send it to the bishop's address. And Malcolm's like, who's the bishop? 
And he's like, I don't know, maybe the Bishop of London? Eric has no fucking clue what's going on at any point in this book. And Malcolm's like, all right, let me push more. And he pulls back and he's like, maybe I shouldn't push farther because I need to be more quote unquote suitable, as Eric had said before, subtle, the suitable knife. Yeah, I wonder. Not, gonna let that go. not at all. I wouldn't. It was the stupidest thing in the world, Eric. God damn it! Uh, this has to be a magisterium bishop, right? Because so okay. Earlier, Malcolm said he takes Sister Benedict to run errands, usually to mail things to the bishop. And here, Eric's like, I don't know, just the bishop, man. His name's the bishop. So I'm not convinced that there is a bishop. Right? Like, mm. is there really a bishop, or did they just fucking say that there was a bishop so that they would have, like, some authority? Right? I mean, if there is, in fact, actually a bishop, he's obviously just Mrs. Coulter's puppet, which is why we don't really know. Maybe we have this answer later in the book, and I completely forgot. Um, but I'm not convinced that there's a bishop. Even anyway. if there is, it's more like a signature on the packet. You know right. what I mean? Like, it's just right. a person with a name. It's not a real person. The person in charge of all of this driving it forward is absolutely Marisa. Yeah, I mean, if there is a bishop, he's, as you said, he's signing his name, and, like, Marissa's the one who's, like, taking him away or whatever. If there that is, she's that not- motherfucker is whipped! Exactly. So, uh, she just needs a man to p- sign things or, like, for whatever. Yeah. So the conversation falls to Miss Carmichael. And Malcolm fishes to learn about her position. Eric's like, she's just a deacon. And Malcolm says, like, if he knows why she'd be talking to any of the nuns at the Priory. And he thinks, oh, I don't know, maybe they're helping to take in teachers and parents who need re-educating. Oh, honey. Mm -mm. Mm Mm-mm. That's not... (sighs) I mean, listen, when I was 10, 11 years old, I was an idiot. I'm still an idiot. But, like, I was a bigger idiot then. I need you to understand that. I remember on 9-11 in 2001, I had a neighbor who was a middle schooler. He was in eighth grade here in the U.S., which is uh, age 14, 15. And his name was Dustin. He was an eighth grader. And he was all, oh, planes crashed into the Trade Center. And I was 10 years old in fourth grade. And I was like, train in the trade center what does that mean like i didn't know what things were i was 10 they don't know what things are so it's really sad yeah. because this is what they think re-education means they don't understand what a re-education camp actually is yeah. uh, i get that like i'm just saying like they hide that from us all politics on any global level they hide this shit from us they don't tell you that they assault and torture and rape and murder people like you don't just learn that when you're 10 years old that governments do that to people uh you have to learn it yourself and research it yourself and come across the right politics as a kid and google shit nowadays i guess and it's interesting what's politics they don't know they haven't been allowed to learn and that's actually how a country controls people right like how Mm -hmm. how is a person going to understand their politics when you refuse to let them and you keep changing the game and make them work for 90% of their life instead to yeah. keep up and survive. How could they learn about culture or politics? How could they? It makes me think a little bit of that Pink Floyd song, um, The Wall. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's like the goal here. 
yep. with what they're doing. Um, but yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I think we're privileged that we don't have to learn it in like life, like in terms yeah. of actually like the experience of, you know, watching people that we know and love being taken away uh, in into re-education camps, aka concentration yeah. camps. So, but I mean, of course, Eric wouldn't know, right? He's the one who's like, yeah. It's totally fine. Like he he's part of the system, right? Like his So Malcolm asks cuz he also doesn't completely understand. He knows a little bit more than everyone else because he is going counterclockwise, but he's like so is the bishop of the boss of it all then? And I'm like again, Malcolm, I don't know about that. And Eric says, "Well, he's not supposed to tell him pretty much any of this unless it's convincing him to join, but you know, that's never stopped Eric before." <laughs> Malcolm's like, "Oh, but I am really considering it. Everything you're saying is so convincing. I want to join every time you tell me more things." He's such a ham. He really is a ham. It it's this is sad though, right? Like to watch him have to lie to Eric and okay. Eric's not like a great kid. Like, no shitting on Eric, you know, he is a product of what he's grown up, right? I mean, his dad works for the courts, and look, you're either soulless or demonless to be able to keep working for the courts with no heartache, or you're maybe not morally there, right? Like, he doesn't seem like he's working on the good guy side. Uh, but so has Eric knew... ever been dishonest with Malcolm? <laughs> no, Eric's very true, and his dad seems true, too. And I don't know, I mean, Eric's not a bad kid, but it's hard to watch this too honest. kind of separation, this severing happening between him yeah. and his friends, because, A, as an only child, as you understand, Eliana, like, you know, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Malcolm's an only child. He lives in kind of a fast-paced, weird world that isn't the same as other kids. He's had to grow up a lot faster than other kids, and now he really has to in the coming chapters. Uh -huh. And it's showing this moral load that he's carrying for Hannah Ralph, right? Like, he's 11. He should be on the playground playing Foursquare, which is the most fun playground game if you have four squares available, right? Uh -huh. And girls have cooties, or whatever you want to say, or dust, or whatever the fuck they have. But instead, girls, he's out girls, here. All girls, stay away from all of them, Malcolm. Yeah, all girls have dust, especially those ones, Malcolm. And instead, he's trying to weasel information out of Eric in order to put together this huge mystery plot. That's what he's working on as an 11-year-old, you know? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's true. He is being, he's being brought into a different world. And yeah, that's a, a big part dustier of, dustier think... environment. It is, and that's a big part of, like, what, what the, the books, even the main series explores, right? What different worlds look like amongst the different people. Uh, it's something that Lyra learns a lot of in the first book. So, absolutely. Malcolm decides to go to a different world, after all this, by heading to the Priory that Thursday, hoping to discover Miss Carmichael's plots, and he startles <laughs> Sister Fenella, who enlists him to help cut up potatoes for dinner. And they discuss Lyra and how she's making a secret language with Pan... Ooh, oh my god, that's the cutest shit in the world, bitch. <sighs> she's like so little, smart. she's not even a real bean, and yet she's out here making a language. She's just so, I can imagine her just going to pan and then you know, I'm just so proud of her, you know? Uh, we should be. Everyone should be proud of Lyra. <laughs> the conversation turns to Miss Carmichael, and Sister Vanilla tells Mal that, you know, I don't really know where that woman comes from, and assumes that she's with child services, Malcolm explains that, well, she came to our school as the front of the League of St. Alexander and asks if Fenella had heard of the saint. And Sister Fenella's like, you know what, Malcolm, there are just 
so many saints. And when he tells her what Alexander was known for, she brushes him off, telling him, you know, that sort of thing doesn't really happen anymore. And Malcolm's like, oh, really? Interesting. I don't know about all that. We've literally heard some parents have been taken. Anyway, Sister Benedicta bursts in on this, and she's like, can I borrow you? Malcolm takes him aside, and then she sternly asks some questions of her own. Specifically, she asks about Miss Carmichael's appearance at his school, and he tells her all. She absorbs the information carefully, telling him their business with Miss Carmichael has hopefully concluded, and then he's like, can I see Lyra? And she's like, no, but you can see her new room, which is this beautiful, warm cream color, smells like fresh paint, lovely rugs, less doom and gloom, and Benedict is like, Malcolm, what else do you think should be in the room? Go work and plan things with Mr. Taphouse, and so he does. Afterwards, Malcolm has difficulty getting to Hannah Ralphs due to the overflowing waters, and when he arrives, she's filling bags with sand to prepare for what the policemen are warning will be a flood. They rush inside to get dry, and he begins to tell her the goings-ons of the chapter, but maybe Hannah Ralph should just listen to our podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> Hannah, though, has news for Malcolm. She knows who's behind the league. It is Lyra's mother. <gasps> Gasp. Malcolm thinks maybe Miss Carmichael was supposed to check in on Lyra for her, but Hannah thinks, I don't know, Mrs. Coulter doesn't seem to care about Lyra. That might be for some other reason, but Sister Benedicta got rid of Miss Carmichael anyway, and the CCD men haven't revisited the trout. So maybe they're free of the issue after all, and they set to finding Malcolm some new books to read. Narrator voice. They were not free of the issue after all. <sighs> they were not. That brings us to chapter 10, Lord Asriel. I want to have a disclaimer that maybe, maybe Chloe is soft on Asriel. In this chapter. Chloe has a very nuanced take on Azrael. And Chloe is here to shine a light. To shine a full moon. A no. moon upon Azrael. For me No, no, no. Understand. I'm here to shine a, I'm here to shine a Lyra on Azrael. Oh. Fuck the moon, okay? Fuck the moon. <laughs> Baby Lyra, uh, that's my shit. <laughs> Sokka did try. <sighs> Leave her out of this. <laughs> So, chapter 10, Lord Asriel. Back to Malcolm. He's helping Mr. Taphouse finish screwing in the heavy-duty shutters with this new tool that he received. He's super jazzed. And Taphouse lets slip that, you know, this should keep them out. And Malcolm's like, they? Who is they in this scenario? And Mr. Taphouse teaches him a new great word, malefactors, evildoers. <laughs> Ah, they got Mal, like Malcolm. That's the insight that I have. Mm -hmm. Malcolm's mm -hmm. like, what kind of evildoers? And Mr. Taphouse tells him, pay that no mind, and then launches into a discussion of how there are all sorts of evildoers, even spiritual ones, and is like, <laughs> ghosts are the least of it, boy! Nightgasts, specters, apparitions, all they can do is say boo and frighten you. We have a new one, a new term of the day, of the night, malefactors. First it was convalescing, now we're at malefactors. Mm. But we also know some of these spirits that Taphouse is speaking of are not really all harmless necessarily, right? Like specters. 
of another world? Or what about instead of night ghasts, necessarily, we have cliff ghasts that terrorize the main three books? Now, that being said, there may be something related to the idea of the secret commonwealth of magical creatures that we learn about in the future. And of course, how Lyra helps the spirits and the amber spyglass who are trapped in the underworld and the harpies with her kindness and maybe even spiritual beings uh, just, you know, living their life, having somewhere to live. Spiritual sanctuary kind of feels important in this story, not just regular sanctuary. And people are out there destroying their spiritual world. That is a great point. That is a part of this story and something that's part of the main books as well. Yeah. Uh, I have nothing that like is significant. I don't know why. I just think of the cliff gas not as like ghost things. I think of them Ooh. as like cute but scary mountain gremlins. You know, the show put them in series one for a little bit. We haven't seen them since, but we have seen them. We've seen them, but you can see true. them well. But yeah. that's how I think of them. Because, like, you remember the old, the biggest, mm-hmm. oldest cliff gas is telling the story about Isahitra. Yeah. And I just think of him as, like, a huge, fuzzy, huge, <laughs> fuzzy cliff gas just laughing as he tells the story. He's like, it's called God Killer. And I just, like, that's my envisioning of that story. That's like the Walder and Statler. Right, the Waldorf and Statler of the story is uh, the Cliff Gas side. Yes. That's us someday, me and you up top of oh Cliff. Oh my god. Gaston, just Waldorf and Statler. Just gassing. <laughs> just Gaston? Well, back to Mr. Taphouse. He just told Malcolm a story about when he worked construction on the old jail in the area, and a dead body on a noose had been suspended through a trap door in the execution room. And he saw it, he came upon it, he fell to his knees, he prayed, and when he opened his eyes, the body was gone. And Malcolm's like, well, what'd you do with all the old wood from that project? (laughs) You know how kids are. When I was a kid once, I was like, Nana, can I have your rings when you die? And she's like, what the fuck? (laughs) I don't know if she said that, but probably. I would have. I would have been like, what the fuck's wrong with you, kid? I digress. Malcolm's like, what'd you do with the wood? And he's like, I burned it, you fool! It was coated in misery! And anyways, he tells him about another ghost he had seen, which was in the Priory, exactly where they were standing at this moment. There's actually a pretty cute moment. He's like, how old do you think I am? A, 70, said Malcolm, (laughs) who knew well that Mr. Taphouse had had his 75th birthday the previous autumn. What a good boy. He's like, you must be 70, Mr. Taphouse. In his head, he's like, fuck, he's so old. I like that he went for something reasonable that he's like, this isn't too flattering. Five years. Five years. It's flattering like just enough. flattering yeah. enough. Really playing it up there. Uh, Mr. Taphouse says that when he was 39 years old, he saw an apparition, a ghost, but Malcolm doesn't believe him, and they're interrupted shortly by Sister Fenella knocking at the door, yelling for Mr. Taphouse's help. It's actually quite concerning. She says that some uniformed men have arrived, trying to take Lyra away, and Malcolm follows along as they briskly walk to the Priory, thinking he also should have grabbed a hammer in the way that Mr. Taphouse grabbed a hammer on the way there, because at 75, he has still got spunk. Sister Fenella sinks into a chair as they enter the Priory, clutching her heart, and gestures them towards Sister Clara, who tells them a similar story, telling them that Sister Benedicta is talking to the men now. Mm. I really love 
Malcolm's fierce protective instincts that are showing in the story at this point, specifically in La Belle Sauvage, regarding the nuns, regarding Lyra, even Alice and his family, it kind of reminds me of Will during The Subtle Knife and his fierce protective loyalty towards his mom and Lyra, right? Like, he was just so angry, and a lot of that we've discussed as some of his emotions and how they've manifested in being you know, a, a child caretaker and all the things he's been through at his young age that age him so much more than that. But Malcolm, too, has kind of that fierce loyalty, right? That, like, I'd kill if something bad happened to this person. That's true. He does kind of have that. And, you know, I guess Quite that's literally. <laughs> something we're supposed to be seeing as a similar between them. Yeah, mm-hmm. maybe the parallels are intentional. They could be. Behind the door... Malcolm hears a conversation between Benedicta and the men. One man is telling her, we have the authority. And Mr. Taphouse takes the time to knock on the door saying, you know, I'm here if you need me, Benedicta. And she calls on him. She's like, leave the door open, Mr. Taphouse, for the men. They're leaving, but please wait outside. One of the men begins to say, you don't seem to understand. But Benedicta does understand. She wants him to go away and not come back. He claims he has a warrant from the Office of Child Protection, an office under the CCD. Yes, Malcolm watches Sister Benedicta from the edge of the door, tear up the piece of paper the men gave her, throwing it in the fire, and says, I saw Cersei Lannister do the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) And the nuns gasp. They're like, wow, that is a Cersei move. And the men watch, and two of them still have their caps on, which Malcolm thinks is bad manners apart from anything else. <laughs> oh, what a boy. Boy. <laughs> I love the passage that comes here. It's so fierce from Sister Benedicta. Did you seriously think for one moment, she said, sounding fierce now, that I would let this little baby, who's been given into our care, be taken away by three strangers? On the strength of a single piece of paper? Three men who practically forced their way into this holy building without any invitation, who frightened the oldest and the least well of us with threats and weapons, yes, weapons, waving your guns in her face? Who do you think you are? Who do you think this place is? The sisters have been given care and hospitality here for 800 years Think what that means. Am I going to abandon all our holy obligations because three bullies in uniform came shouldering their way in and tried to frighten us? And for a helpless baby not six months old, now go, get out, and don't come back. (sighs) Yeah, girl. Yeah, you tell them, Benedicto. That's my... I know. At first we were like, ooh, but Sister Benedicta seems like someone you don't want to cross. And you're like, yes, you don't, but she's on the life. side of good. Sister Benedicta, stand, squad, mm. here. God uh, is on uh. her side. You know what I mean? Like, Truly. God That bless. woman is, she's, she's going to rise to heaven. Yes. Well, as she's kicking him out, she tells the man to take his thugs and go pray to the Lord. And once they leave, all of the sisters flock to Benedicta. And they stroke Lyra's hair and give both of them words of sympathy. And Aww. we have a line of Lyra's crying stopped. And Malcolm saw her smile and laugh and preen herself as if she had done something <laughs> as if she had done something splendid. <laughs> it's so Lyra. Lyra, oh, I fixed it. 
It was me? I did the whole thing? Me the whole time? (laughs) I am uncomfortable when things are not about me? (sighs) Mr. Taphouse guides Malcolm back to the workshop after all this commotion, and Malcolm's like, were those malefactors, Mr. Taphouse? And Mr. Taphouse is like, yes, Malcolm, those are malefactors. They clean up, they get water ready for Taphouse so that he doesn't spontaneously combust from the Danish oil that he uses, and home Malcolm goes. His mom doesn't really know what this new office of child protection is that he mentions to her at dinner. She tells Malcolm, eat your dinner. Malcolm tells her all about the events of his day instead, in between feverish bites, even getting to use his new term a couple times, you know, malefactors. Mrs. Polstead heads to grab something from the basement, and Alice, who is doing dishes, turns. Ben, her demon, is growling, and she goes, I know the Office of Child Protection. Her demon said, Bastards, and growled again. Chills, right? Yeah. A government office that's supposed to protect children? Do you think we have something like that here, maybe? In theory. In theory, there's a lot of theory in this couple of chapters, and I feel like the U.S. practices a lot of it. I'm sure the UK practices theory too. Don't there look into the Arizona Child Protective Services too deeply is all I'm saying. And do not look at our podcast from it. The system is broken, but there are definitely people who care. Yeah, it's, it's just that they get pushed out through extortion and blackmail. And emotional heartbreak. Or murder. Oh, wow. So shit's good. You know, I mean... Look, the child exploitation themes in the story, and I'm not going to tell you in detail of my personal experience, but I can tell you as someone who was questioned by forensic scientists at the age of 11 personally, some of these services are just not out to help children, right? They're out to exploit them. And that is the big theme of La Belle Sauvage at this point, because you have Malcolm as the child spy being exploited. You have Hannah's guilt from that. You have the League of St. Alexander with the badge-wearing children being exploited and manipulated by government, being told, you'll be powerful if you serve us loyally. And of course, the thematics of Alice here hinting that the government has a child protection service that might not always be helpful, maybe sometimes even to the extent evil, And they happen to be tied to the CCD, as we know, meaning a fresh supply of children is very easily found by them. This division is being headed up by Mrs. Coulter, we just learned, right? So this is the humble beginnings of what we learn as the gobblers. She's like, oh, interesting. Using children. That's a thought. Easy peasy. Yeah, and, and because of just how morally bankrupt the mission of this office is you know that's part of what gives sister benedicta such strength right because they're clearly in many ways supposed to be founded on some principles right like there are in theory some things that are laid out in the bible that are uh kind of clear like and and all of that or like what they're following and you can't say that you have that much more moral high ground working for this office than you do over nuns, right? Like, they gave up their whole, whole fucking life and have devoted themselves to God, so. Like, who am I? <laughs> yeah, like, especially someone like Sister Benedicta. And, like, the speech that she gives uh, is a great way that she shows, like, you don't have the moral high ground here. What you're doing is so clearly wrong. Like, there's no way that it makes any sense, especially compared to, like, I mean, they are within, like, 
the faction they are within like that system of the magisterium right and and honoring the same entity so i mean it doesn't matter right like we're all the same flesh the same fucking air that we all breathe and this is a fucking tiny baby who's done nothing yeah you guys are ridiculous is what benedicta said she's like you are literally acting a fool a complete fool and she she tears him down it doesn't obviously necessarily help her in the future but yeah and i mean you know i know you said lyra has done nothing but you know she she sure thinks she did something great as we said <laughs> at the end of all this she did though. the crowd eventually thins though and malcolm has to make his own entertainment at the trout he starts his geography homework, making a list at the principal rivers of England and draws them on a map. He starts to wonder if La Belle Sauvage would ever be able to float out at sea. Interesting. Hmm. <laughs> Even trying to measure the English canal on his book. But suddenly he is overtaken by an aura, which he, he does get routinely. Yeah, it's described kind of like a migraine aura, which... Philip Pullman does get these. He gets these auras. This is a total self-Philip Pullman thing that he's put into the story. About 20% of people who suffer from migraines will have an aura with it. So 20 minutes to an hour before the pain, they see flashing lights, wavy lines, dots, some trippy shit. They have some blurry vision. These are classic migraine headaches, and Pullman apparently gets these. Because Polstead is his insert character who loves boating and carpenting and karate and scholarship and a spy and he's really hot but he's still nerdy. Anyways, but- Dude, he's just fucking Milo from the latest Pokemon games. I know, I hate it. Don't ruin this for me. That was a fun gym to get past. Personally, I always love defeating the grass gyms. Anyways. Interesting. Interestingly enough, Pullman has an atlas on his wall. This is the cutest shit in the world. You'll like this. He has an atlas on his wall, and he looks at it through binoculars from across the room. I think I, he, he might have talked about that even before, and yes. And that that's, he feels significant with later on, right? Like when I'm like, Mom, can yeah. you get me an atlas? I'm like, wow. Uh, yeah, that is a very Pullman thing all very right cute. very cute i like connected those two before but now i'm really connecting them and i'm like hmm. <laughs> hmm. well back to his migraine aura yes we have a line of and it was very slowly getting bigger it wasn't a spot anymore it was a line a curved line like a loosely scribbled letter c and it was sparkling and flickering in a zigzag pattern of blacks and whites and silvers and Asa cannot see this aura, but she can feel the aura migraine, and it feels like they're a long way apart, and she can see for miles, and everything is clear and calm. But if Malcolm tries to look at it directly, it goes away, but when he looks at it from the side, he sees it. And these are kind of like the floaters in my eyeballs, but those are not magic, those are just pools of protein in my eyeballs. It's not <laughs> fun. Um, there was an anime I watched that, uh, had a similar idea, and that one was actually, like, really cool. They weren't, like, floaters, but kind of looked like floaters. Mushishi. It was a calming anime. If you're looking for a calming anime that also has some interesting supernatural stuff. Anyway, um, I believe, Chloe, you have some things to say about this in the discussion? Yeah, I'm definitely gonna talk about this in the discussion. Eliana's actually gonna be invited. We're going to let her attend. 
Yes, you're invited, Eliana, wow. to the big, comfy discussion. Amazing. But it's not a dusty discussion, so that might be part of why, too. <laughs> this all lasts about 20 minutes, right? Until finally the aura ebbs away and he talks to Asta and says, That was very strange. Like Spangled. Like that hymn, you remember. And the horned moon at night mid her Spangled sisters bright. It was Spangled. They discuss whether this was real or not, but both decide... We could feel it, which means it was real. A common theme, right, as we move forward. He thinks mm, maybe nothing, but Asta says it must be something. So this is actually a hymn that was written by John Milton, you know, of Paradise Lost fame. It is Oops. called Let Us With a Gladsome Mind. He actually wrote this, get ready to be disappointed, at age 15 while he studied at St. Paul's as a paraphrase of Psalm 136, which is sometimes known as the Great Hallel. It is probably his most famous hymn of the 19 that he created because his poetry style didn't always give kind of an easy battle for congregational singing. Lots of different meter changes, lots of stuff happening, so it wasn't always easy for congregational singing. The hymn in question, a verse from it, is Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, his love endures forever. And give thanks to the Lord of lords, his love endures forever. The actual quotation of the hymn that he's speaking about comes from, He the golden tressed sun caused all day his course to run, the horned moon to shine by night mid her spangled sisters bright. All things living he doth feed, his full hand supplies their need. It's a song about creation, and the way the spangled eye is described here reminds me of what the worlds look like blasted apart, right? When we get Azrael blasting them apart, come Lyra's story, and the shimmery air of maybe a window into another world that Will would have cut with his knife. It's a very interesting image, the fact that if he just looks, if Malcolm just moves his head just right, he can see this shining spiral of something, maybe dust. Interesting, interesting. Yes, it does feel quite a bit like all these other things. It's quite a bit like a... a, There are moments of it that remind me of a scene that we're going to get, like, literally... Practically right after this. Um, (laughs) When they're interrupted by Malcolm's father knocking on the door, saying a man is here to see Malcolm, that he's in the terrace room, and that man and his leopard demon, snow leopard demon, say that they are friends (laughs) of Hannah Ralph, and he introduces himself as Azriel Balakwa, and Malcolm's like, (laughs) yeah, he actually literally more or less says that. He's like, I don't know him. And... He doesn't believe him at first, being like, Hannah's never said anything about you. And then Azrael's like, all right, all right, here's some other credentials. I'm the father of the baby that is in the priory. And he's like, ah, yes, right, that Lord Azrael. It's like, damn, what a power move, Malcolm. He does does test him on that, right? Because he's like, all right, Malcolm, how are you going to prove what I just said is true? And Malcolm's like, what's her demon's name? And he says Panalaman, which tells me that maybe his demon was the one that named Panalaman. Yes, exactly. And that's, I mean, it's a pretty good proof, right? Considering yeah. that everyone else just keeps calling her the baby. 
(laughs) (laughs) They talk about the legacy in Alexander, and Malcolm explains the men that recently showed up at the Priory and their connection. And Azrael tells Malcolm, you know, you know what, I'm not allowed to see Lyra, and I've been ordered by the High Court to stay away, or they will take Lyra away from even the nuns that Malcolm has explained love Lyra like their own, and Azrael asks Malcolm if he could put a good word in with these nuns to just, like, let him see Lyra, and, like, kind of right now. And Malcolm's like, it's pretty late. They go to bed early, and he's like, they're probably sleeping, and Azrael's like, we gotta do it now because i gotta be gone by the morning and he pressures malcolm to take him now (laughs) yeah we got this line there was no refusing this man which seems to be a pretty good identifier of asriel right there is not often refusal around this man he's quick to anger passionate and it's very obvious here they take labelle sauvage in order to avoid the malefactors that await Asriel downstream. He's pretty surprised, right? Asriel's surprised to find that La Belle Sauvage is a real canoe, not a toy. Interestingly enough, this is kind of reminiscent of Spruce Goose. What is Spruce Goose, hmm. Eliana? What I is know you want to know. Spruce Goose? How did you know that I didn't know? It was like, what is I know you didn't goose? because I didn't know because mm-hmm. my partner had to tell me. And Spruce Goose was a creation by Howard Hughes. He wanted to kind of take the toys of his youth and make them into these giant, ridiculous, unrealistic planes, and thus was born the Spruce Goose. It was a Hughes H-4 Hercules, a prototype strategic airlift flying boat that he designed intended as a transatlantic flight for World War II. It was not completed in time, so when Asriel's like, Ah! This isn't a toy, this is a real boat. It kind of feels a bit like that. And it also reminds me of Ponyo. I don't know what is up with Ponyo in our His Dark Materials episodes lately. But Ponyo, when Ponyo comes back, if you've seen Ponyo, you will understand this. When Ponyo comes back, Ponyo shows up and is like, Sosuke has a boat and makes Sosuke's boat bigger and like life-size. And that's also what it feels like, like Malcolm is helping this magical child, a.k.a. Ponyo, and uh, making his boat magically bigger so that he can take care of Ponyo. Yes, to all of that. (laughs) I am a Ponyo podcaster now. I mean, it's not the worst idea. We could be a Ponyo podcast. It's such a good movie. I mean, I I wouldn't say no. I'm just saying. Um, Pod... Yo, that's not, that didn't have the ring that I thought it would. Um, So Asriel with the canoe, right? Uh, Malcolm's so surprised a lot of the time that Asriel's so good with the canoes, which kind of makes me think that this is supposed to lend, uh, or tie back into the time that he spent with the Egyptians, right? And how the Egyptians are like, we love Lord Asriel. He helped us out in the flood. I'm like, does this mean that then he was? Like, we had this discussion before. Was he in the flood in the 50s? And again, how old is Asriel? Mysteries. Also, (laughs) I'm just like, I I think that 
maybe part of us seeing Lord Azrael here, right, versus uh, the way that the League and, and the Office of Child Protection or whatever is working is supposed to sort of contrast with Mrs. Coulter, right? Because Azrael is willing to risk his own safety in order to see his daughter in person, even fleetingly, and ensure that she has this, her freedom and is able to grow up with people who love her versus Mrs. Coulter, who keeps just coming up with like, I'm going to try all these random schemes, right? Coming up with department after department, all very randomly, very Blair Waldorf, trying to secure her <laughs> daughter in her custody somehow or control her that's not exactly the waldorf thing but just like schemes schemes you know interestingly enough when i was younger i went on this canoe trip with my family okay. we had like family and family okay. friends yes this is off the cuff get ready eliana all uh, right eliana's like ready to edit uh i went on this canoe trip with my family friends it was like an annual thing and i remember my uncle told me it was a little under the influence of alcohol at the time and he was all like Chloe, i want you to know you should try everything once. And I was like, what? Okay. And he's like, try like, everything once. All the drugs, you know, like it's pre-drink. Oh. And I was like, maybe not everything, Uncle Matt. And he's like, no, everything. Like he just argued with me about it. And I was like, but I don't want to. I don't want to do heroin. Um, <laughs> fill in the rest, everyone. But uh, now, just a week ago, he was like, I'm glad you used your discretion and only tried the things that you felt were right once, because maybe I was wrong about what I said. And that's the kind of parent Asriel feels like here, right? Like, Coulter's more like my mother who wants to control everything I breathe or do. But Asriel is like, the character's like, nah, Lyra's gotta make her own path exactly the way she's gotta make it, man. Uh, and that's kind of what it felt like here. Absolutely. And I want you to know, I did not try everything once, just a lot of things once. Yeah, I just, how old was your uncle at the time? Oh my God. He had to have been like 40 at the time. And he was oh, like, it was him and his best friend in a canoe. I was in a canoe with them. And they're like, you just got to try everything once, man. And I was like, I don't think that's true. I just don't. I think I could try some things once, but I just don't think everything is the right idea. <laughs> yeah, and that's, sometimes that's kids kind of know better, right? Path. Yeah, exactly. Like Malcolm. <laughs> well, this Malcolm. Thank you, Chloe, for your for your story. My wisdom. Um, your wisdom, and you know, we'll see some of maybe wisdom, maybe not here in a moment, right? When they arrive at the Priory and Malcolm softly throws rocks at Sister Fenella's window, trying not to startle her too badly with her bad heart, but also praying that he doesn't wake up Sister Benedicta, because then he's in for it. And then eventually Sister Fenella does wake up, and she's like, what the fuck <laughs> is happening, Malcolm? Comes to the window, and she refuses to help Azriel, of course, at first, and and Malcolm's cause, and nothing Malcolm can say will convince her. Then Azriel's like, leave it to me, comes to the window, says something that Malcolm cannot hear or make out, as you were discussing earlier when he's talking to Fenella, and after a few moments of that, she disappears from the window, and two minutes later, she comes back. She's leaning out of the window and giving Azriel a small little bundle. Lyra. 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 <laughs> That's the song that Azriel sang to her. How had he persuaded Sister Fenella? Malcolm could only wonder. He watched the man lift the baby again and walk along the grass between one bare flower bed and the next, holding the bundle high so he could whisper to her, rocking her gently, 
strolling along slowly in the brilliant moonlight. At one point, he seemed to be showing the moon to Lyra, pointing up at it, holding her so she could see, or perhaps he was showing Lyra to the moon. At any rate, he looked like a lord in his own domain, nothing to fear, all the silvery night to enjoy. Up and down, he strolled with his child. Malcolm thought of Sister Vanella, waiting in fear, in case Lord Asriel didn't bring her back, in case his enemies attacked, in case Sister Benedict suspected something was up. But there was no sound from the priory, no sound from the road, no sound from the man and his baby daughter in the moonlight. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. You good, good, Chloe? You good? I'm good. I'm good. I've never been well, upset about anything in my life, first well, of all. So I'm here just observing Chloe, allegedly being good, as uh, Malcolm observes that Asriel and his demon are very still, like ghosts, and watches them as they move. Azrael comes back up the walk, giving Lyra back to Sister Fenella and beckons for Malcolm to join him. Because now a noise is heard of a gas engine, a searchlight is seen on the bridge, and Azrael knows that they've come for him. Malcolm thinks quickly and is like, here Azrael, just take my boat. And then Azrael promises to get the boat back to him. We have this line closing it all out with... And then he was gone, speeding with long, powerful strokes <laughs> down the river on the swollen current. The leopard demon, like a great figurehead at the prow. La Belle Sauvage had never gone so fast, Malcolm thought. This is a passage about Azriel. I'm going to start with. I feel like that's a, a strong way to open that... This is a passage. This is a different passage, right? I feel that Asriel's presence in the Amber Spyglass is a lot gruffer. Marisa's presence, when juxtaposed against his, is very sympathetic, right? Like, Asriel says, like, if she can't deal with herself, re Lyra, uh, if she can't figure it out, then it is what it is, Marisa. You know, he's a total dick, kind of. And Marisa's like, that's our daughter, Asriel. And Asriel's like, no, we're looking into the void right now. Fuck Lyra. Uh, which is kind of this big flip from where we are here, where we get this very sympathetic scene with Asriel, this this last moment, right? Like, this is the last goodbye to Lyra before he sends her on her way to have a semi-lonely upbringing uh, and what he thinks is the better life for her. And I can tell you that as somebody that is a child of a different biological parent than raised me, Lyra was obviously raised by a group effort, some of the people at Jordan, and later, of course, by Lee, Yorick, Serafina, Mary Malone, and even by Will, right? Uh, she was not raised by Azriel, and I was not raised by my biological father either, and I remember a very, very distinct memory when I was one year old. I don't personally remember seeing it because I was one year old. It's not a thing you remember, but I was one year old and my mom has told me about a time where my biological father on my one year birthday, probably the last interaction we had with him that we knew it was him. He left a toy on the back deck, which was a present for me. It was a Barbie doll in a brown paper bag and it was tied off and it was just left on the back porch and that was my birthday present. And it was his goodbye present, right? And this was Asriel's 
goodbye letter. This was Azriel's way of saying goodbye to Lyra. And I don't think the way that he dealt with his relationship with Lyra throughout any of her life or his life was healthy. He and Marisa were quite obviously chasing a different star, right? Like they were chasing something Uh so different for each of them. They had different ambitions, but this for Asriel was definitely his goodbye letter to Lyra, his goodbye song. You know, he, he held her, he showed her to the moon, and he probably told the moon. I mean, we won't know what he said, but I'm sure he told the moon, and I'm sure he told Sister Fernella about how important Lyra was. He knew, without a prophecy, he didn't need a prophecy to know that this was the most important daughter in the whole world, at least to him in that moment. And that was really special, I think. No matter what he does, no matter how much global climate change he causes, that was a special scene, in my opinion. I think it was a very special, very prolifery, like, just a really special scene, Pullman wrote. You could tell he put his whole heart into it. You could tell that he put a lot of the spirit, a lot of the soul, a lot of the demon of the series into that moment. Yeah. Oh no, what if I cry? But it wasn't yep. the books. It was Chloe who made me cry. <laughs> and maybe that's what's right. Um, yeah, I think that that's all really clear when we come through this scene, right? And it casts a different light on Azrael, right? And, and the relationship and really shows what Lyra kind of lost out on, what was torn from her, what she could have had, had things gone differently, um, had people decided to fight for her but also you we see what the system is like right even in Malcolm's school and it's so hard it's such a hard battle for Azrael to fight like if the children right are even part of it how can one man do that just to be with his daughter so he takes what he can and takes these fleeting moments to be with her and as you said say goodbye um and try to set her up the best he can with what he can. I mean, I think he could have done better. He's not the most caring father, um, as we see in the main series, but yeah. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is, he could have done better, but like, anyone could be a parent, you know? Uh, yeah. He didn't stop up to continue being a parent, but anyone could be a parent. You don't purposefully have to try to be one. Sometimes it accidentally happens. Hence, I'm here, you know? I'm here. Yeah. I'm talking to you right now. I happened. I wasn't a, a purposeful thing. But, like, that's the thing. Is like, anyone can be a parent, and I think if things could have gone differently, maybe he could have been a better parent to Lyra, but that is something that we see in the next chapter, which I do think is very interesting framework, because Pullman doesn't get to play with as much of it in the main trilogy that, I mean, Azrael is sought after by the government. He is absolutely sought after by the government he's not allowed to have a normal parent life and that doesn't excuse it that doesn't mean Uh like i mean in this moment he doesn't take lyra and go and make her be subjected to an awful life on the run a bit if you've ever watched weeds for example which i highly recommend nancy botlin has a newborn at some point no spoilers and like she ends up trying to sneak in to see a doctor she's on the run as this big drug dealer and she's like my kid's upset. And he's like, oh, are you doing all these awful things with your kid? Are you on the run? Are your kids unable to get the right proteins and vitamins? Are they this? Are they that? This might be why your kid doesn't feel well, your newborn baby. And she's like, oh, my awful lifestyle is killing my child. Wow, who knew that would happen? And like, that's what Azriel would have done 
if he took Lyra and this woman yeah. didn't return her to Fenella's arms, if he didn't go back to the window, that's what would have happened. He knows, as Malcolm later notes, and Hannah later notes, like, obviously he knew this was the better way to go, sadly. But was yeah. it? Could he I have mean, made a life with her? We'll never know. Because he didn't we try. We don't know. He didn't try. He didn't that's try. All. But neither, neither, and I think that's what's sad and hard. Neither of her parents truly tried. Yeah. Well, everyone, you know, now that we've talked about the one heart that we all have, <coughs> let's talk about the next chapter, Three Legs. Malcolm <sighs> and Asta talk endlessly about the entire encounter with Azrael for days, as I think we will be doing here and for many days for the rest of our lives <laughs> on this podcast. I mean that actually very seriously. Uh, Malcolm can't really talk to his parents about it because they're too preoccupied with the inn to notice if anything's up with Malcolm anyway. And when Saturday comes, he is able to finally tell Dr. Hannah Ralph after a delayed journey by foot, as his boat was uh, loaned to Asriel. Hannah thinks that that was very generous of Malcolm, and Malcolm had trusted Asriel fully after seeing him handle Lyra and Fenella. Hannah says he's hard to say no to, and she also says that she's sure that he did the right thing, and Hannah wonders if his pursuants are from the Office of Child Protection like Miss Carmichael, and Malcolm's like, I don't think so. The fact that Asriel didn't take Lyra with him means that he must think that the Priory is safer than wherever he was going, and he hopes that La Belle Sauvage doesn't get bullet holes in it. <laughs> oh, Malcolm. I find it interesting that repeated language of he's hard to say no to from Hannah. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I was curious to see if it was in the main series in that exact form, but it's not, which I was surprised about. But that is something that kind of describes Azrael with that passion as we discussed in his whole entire character. Yeah. This entire story with Malcolm does remind me, though, of how Lyra was uh, embellishing, maybe is the word to use, her story <laughs> about her parents <laughs> they and had what swords. Yeah, she's like, and then there was a sword fight, and Makos is like, no, there wasn't. You are high. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough. Try everything once, Lyra. <laughs> try everything once, Lyra. Thanks, Uncle Matt. And they were on they were on a boat, you know, Chloe. <laughs> La Belle Sauvage, I mean. Oh my god. Interestingly enough, handheld guns feel more prominent in this trilogy than the original yeah. trilogy so far. Uh, there's more machine guns noted in the original trilogy but i feel like we're huh. getting a lot of handguns but asriel could get bullet holes right because the whole story is that he's a wild man the first shot was from edward coulter mr coulter who reached his gun he fired and then the second shot was asriel shooting him right between the eyes and dashing his brains out and that whole origin story has these vibes right similar to the story right now with the gunshots back and forth and that feeling of suspense over keeping lyra safe and asriel's troubles with the law uh, i loved seeing that story brought back to life here yeah and and asriel's you know protecting lyra in that moment and malcolm checks out some new books one on symbolic pictures the other is called the silk road he thought that the Silk Road would be a murder mystery. Uh, and turns out it was not. It ends up being by a modern traveler of the trade routes across Central Asia from the Tartary to the Levant. And he goes home that night and while snacking on rice pudding, asks his mom for a bigger atlas for his <laughs> birthday. And she tells him she'll ask his father to, and to finish up and get to work because it's busy. And this is, again, what we were saying about atlases. 
He loves them. Philip Pullman. He loves his atlases. He's like, girl, where that atlas at? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Let me search. Let me explore that booty. Let me get all up in that atlas. (laughs) (laughs) That atlas. At last, I'm plundering Mm. that land, Mm. says Philip Pullman. So, on Sunday, day after Saturday, Hannah Ralph is checking on her house's preparations for the flood. She walks to the end of the street to eye the water down in the banks. The water level on the canal has drastically risen, and the wind is blowing the water toward her house and others beyond in Jericho. When she heads to her house, a gray, unmarked, very official-looking van is sitting parked outside of it, and a person's knocking on her door. Jesper's like, look natural, keep walking, don't stop. Jesper, yes, Professor Jesper is here. Everyone stay calm. She keeps a steady pace. She thinks she had nothing to fear from police or any other agency, except that, like every other citizen, she had everything to fear. (laughs) Ha ha ha. (laughs) <laughs> ah, they could lock her up with no warrant and keep her there with no charge ah, the old act of habeas corpus had been set aside with little protest from those in parliament who were supposed to look after English liberty and now one heard tales of secret arrests and imprisonment without trial there was no way of finding out whether the rumors were true except for living them I was going to say, except for, like, she has access to the alethiometer, right? Yes. She Limited literally scope, but she could try. That's true. I mean, I'm just saying, she has something that is literally able to do that. Anyway, Hannah Ralph decides she can't walk, just walk around in the rain forever and decides to face the man who's knocking on her door. She heads straight there, trying to be confident and strong, and asks the man what he wants, and he's like, I'm from the Environmental Protection Agency, here to check on everyone in the neighborhood, in the extreme manner. And she's like, oh. Oops. And puts her rifle away, and there's this man and his bedraggled, rain-trotted robin. There's another man with an otter demon. And they're warning her that her sandbags are leaking, ma'am, and... Uh, and asks who the neighbor of this place is, hoping to get the house, their house also settled with more sandbags. And she asks if he thinks it'll flood then, and he says he's unsure, but better to be ready. And she fixes up her sandbags to redistribute them, and heads inside and locks the door. And I, I just want to know more about the otter demon. This is nuts for me because you know that, like, I love otters. This yeah. Is- this is hard for me. I really do. And, you know, they're, they have a lot of meanings. They're like great fortunes, freedom, passion. Maybe this man is passionate about something like the environment. Oh, that would be actually really wholesome and nice. Just flipping that around passionately. Good. Yeah. Yeah. They are cute. <laughs> when we flash over to the Priory from here... Sister Fenella is not as cute as the otter because she refuses to talk to Malcolm about Asriel. She's like, I am avoiding everything about this situation. She's like, you peel these apples, Bramley apples, by the way, uh, and they're less than perfect because they sell the good ones. He waits for an entrance and then slowly Malcolm's like, all right, I have a new method to talk to Fenella. He's like, 
I wonder what happened about George Boatwright's sister, Vanilla. Sister Vanilla says, yeah, interesting. Says he may be in the woods if they haven't caught him yet. And Malcolm provides that he might even be in disguise. But doesn't know what he or his demon would be disguised as, or even how. So he asks Sister Fenella what games she played as a child, and she tells him that King Arthur was their most popular game. She pantomimes the game for him with a knife and a lump of unused dough. And it would be that King Arthur would be able to pull the sword out, but no one else could do it. <laughs> it's the cutest story, right? And it's really interesting to think about King Arthur in regards to this book, La Belle Sauvage, and... A little bit of the rest of the story, no spoilers, but especially when thinking about the secret commonwealth of magical creatures being set up in these stories. In King Arthur's realm, you have the Lady of the Lake, right? Who was considered by some scholars symbolic of a Welsh lake fairy. Interesting. Nimue is often shown in stories providing Arthur with the Sword of Excalibur, helping to eliminate Merlin, raise Lancelot, save the dying Arthur's life. How our later Lady of the Lake comes into play is not quite one-to-one. However, she kind of provides a plot turning point, and in rereading this now, the second time I found the King Arthur game, it's kind of a huge standout. It reminds me a bit of Lee playing the Alamo with his friends, and there's almost a certain severing imagery happening with Fenella sticking huh. the knife into the dough. Just a thought. It, it really stood out to me. It directly connects all of this to King Arthur, Lady of the Lake, and maybe even Malcolm's plot moving forward. And even the idea of that one person gets to be chosen, right, to hold the sword feels a little bit like the subtle knife as mm. well. Yeah, the the bearer of the badge. Yeah, literally, only one person really gets to uh, use it the way that it's meant to be used. I'm going to be real with you. I don't really get this game. Um, you don't get don't the really game? Under- I don't so understand. Easy. So everyone, But then everyone just agrees that like one person gets to be the one to pull the sword out and everyone else just has to pretend that they can't do it. Yeah, Eliana, we live in a society. Do you not get that? Some people have to be treated fragilely because they have an ego that has to be fed so quietly or they implode. Do you not know that? I just don't get the game. And I'm like, maybe that it makes sense as a children's game, right? Because Ring Around the Rosie yeah. doesn't make sense either. We just spin around, sing the song, and then fall down and like talk about the bubonic plague without knowing it. Yeah. So like maybe maybe I have lost my sense of childhood wonder. Wait, are you saying your imagination has run away and you have to spend a whole thinking, book finding I'm, it? I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about it. So Sister Vanilla tells Malcolm, here, you try the game. And Asa changes into a monkey on his wrist to help him <laughs> heave and pretend to grunt and strain to pull the knife out as King Arthur did. Sister Vanilla laughs and says that she wanted to be King Arthur but was usually mm-hmm. just a squire. And her squirrel demon pipes up that sometimes the both of them would play this game on their own though. And he was like, but you were always King Arthur then. I think this would be me and my demon, as an only child, maybe playing alone because kids are awful. But then we'd be like reading a book and talking about it deeply. Maybe my demon would just be Jesper. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what games my demon and I would have played as only children, but definitely a lot of reading. Sister Fenella asks Malcolm what he plays, and he says, Well, I like to play Explorer a lot, discovering lost civilizations, etc. And she asks him how La Belle Sauvage is these days. And he's like, Well, I uh, loaned it to Lord Asriel. 
when <laughs> he was seeing Lyra. <laughs> and Sister Fenella says nothing in response, goes back to the pastry and offers, I'm sure he was grateful. Yikes! Sister Fenella is not having it. Mm-hmm. Good for her. Malcolm and Asta discuss the abrupt ending of their visit with Sister Fenella, who Asta is thinking, and she's like, she seemed ashamed of breaking the rules for Asriel. They can't mm-hmm. decide if she's already confessed her sin to Benedicta or not, but they think about looking in on Mr. Taphouse for a minute. They're like, maybe we'll go check it on him then. His lights are off, though, so they don't plan to bother, but they stop because they see something, a shadow. Asta thinks she sees a man-shaped shadow, and they wait, watching 100 yards away until something comes limping into the view. It's a hyena, a three-legged hyena. It's unmoving, a hulking shadow detaches itself from it, a man-shaped shadow, and the shadow stares at Malcolm and becomes one with the wall again. The maimed hyena stares straight at Malcolm and Asta and then begins to pee, eventually loping back into the shadow. Malcolm is completely rattled. He tells Asta to turn into an owl immediately and makes for the priory, telling Sister Fenella he needs to speak to Sister Benedicta. Benedicta rushes him in, and Malcolm tells her of the demon that he saw, and he finds himself unable to tell her, though, of the foul thing that the demon had done, because he felt soiled and belittled by it. And... This is not about Malcolm's feelings, uh, but I do want to talk about, you know, I wonder why he feels so, it's not like I'm wondering why he feels so soiled. I like get it, but also I'm just like, I don't understand to an extent also how demon biology works. Like, I know that they're not technically biological, but like, do they even need to defecate at all or urinate? Like, we know that they don't really need to eat, right? That's made pretty clear to us, but we see that they kind of do need to sleep, but, like, does it doesn't need to pee? So maybe that's why he feels so soiled, because this was such an unnecessary act. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, do demons... I mean, I guess they can pee if they want. That's the point. There's something interesting that Pullman talked about in the Black Wells interview this week, uh, where he just talked about how, you know, he's growing as he gets along with demons. I think he has had a lot of conversation open up on some of the gender aspect of demons that he kind of started to explore and never really. And I think he's learned a lot about that or discovered it. But I really just love the way that he's constantly talking about how he's constantly discovering new things about demons. Like he he literally refers to it as, I'm still learning new things about demons all the time. And I think this is definitely an expansion and evolution of that that we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that comes up, you know, later on in this book, like how how he's discovering and in in this sequel series in general. And I think that that's something that I really respect about Pullman as a writer that he says that he talks about it in the terms of discovery and we'll see kind of the way that he thinks about discovery in this chapter. But, you know, this demon is missing a leg and the the characters discuss the hyena missing a leg. But we also see uh, at another point there is a demon who is completely paralyzed, right? But mm-hmm. the human, the body, is still able to move well. And it's not like the the demon being paralyzed is a blight or a, speaks to the mm-hmm. ethics of that person the way that this demon's uh, sort of disfigurement does. So I think it's interesting and that's something that I, I have enjoyed watching Philip Pullman grow in. Yeah, he's developing it 
very interestingly, and even here, I mean, Malcolm explaining what he saw to the sisters, it, it freaks them out too. They're like, oh, this kid's shaken. This is a weird thing. It's not normal. It's taboo. They thank him for his good deed, and they're like, go home. Sister Benedicta says, Malcolm, go home. Lyra will be safe here behind these very strong shutters, Mr. Taphouse and you made. And I'll watch you cross the bridge home. And he feels very protected by that presence, that angelic presence, so to speak, watching him and runs home. Asta flying ahead as an owl. He gets into the kitchen, but he's stopped dead in his tracks because the man with the demon behind the demon is sitting at the bar. The hyena demon's missing one leg, and the man is talking to his father. Everyone is sitting as far as they can get away from this guy, right? He's obviously Mm -hmm. having a very strained conversation with Mr. Polstead, breaking the silence. Uh, Mr. Polstead leans over. He's like, hey, Malcolm, where you been? This is awful. (laughs) And we get this passage. The hyena demon clacked her teeth. Big, sharp, yellow teeth and a small head. She was astonishingly ugly. Whatever had robbed her of her right foreleg would have suffered for it if those teeth had met in its flesh. Yes. Malcolm goes on to wait on the other bed, and they all quietly warn him to watch his step with the with the man and his demon and Mal goes to check the terrace room empty but for a couple of dirty glasses and he and Asta discuss the man's nature and Asta says surprisingly that the man is warm and interesting but the hyena is the one that has the issue and Malcolm's like but they're one person though aren't they which is yes what we were taught throughout the main books and in the this this book it's not untrue um They plan to go upstairs and write it all down to tell Dr. Ralph, but then they make a pit stop to the kitchen to wash some glasses. He tells his mom about the man and his demon, and his mom isn't much help either. She tells him to stay away from that guy because she doesn't like the look of him, which is mom thing to do. She's not wrong. Uh, He figures that he'll talk to his father about it later and comments that there's hardly anyone at the bar. Not even Alice. And his mother says, well, if that man keeps coming around, it'll be like this every night, and the father's gonna have to kick him out she changes the topic to his homework and gives him his supper and tells him to get on with it ass as a squirrel toying with a nut while malcolm hurries through his cauliflower and cheese which actually sounds really good and so does the cold plum pie that he eats with cream the pie sounds good but how could you say that about cauliflower oh that's right i forgot you don't like cauliflower it's horrible it's great it made me sad i was like i get it you don't have money so you eat cauliflower no i'm sorry don't what cauliflower is so good cauliflower is disgusting you're disgusting I am disgusting. But the cold plum pie is delicious. Okay, that sounds yes. good. I'll I'll give you that. Both of it sounds good to me. All of it sounds good to me. <laughs> you can have the broken. cauliflower, I'll have the pie. What? I want the pie too and the cream. <sighs> when they drop the now dried clean glasses off at the bar, the man that the hyena is still there and he can't help but take a peek at him. He's wearing traveler's clothes and is actually almost handsome with a rough mischief about him. Malcolm feels like he can't help but like him. The man smiles at him and winks warmly, seeming to say, we know a thing or two between them. 
what an interesting kind of just relation that, you know, we're expecting this very rugged, evil interaction, and yet he's charming. I will comment. I want to make sure the pronunciation by Philip Pullman is known. Gerard Bonvie. Oh. Yes, that is like the pronunciation. Like Emily and Paris. That's what I said. Did you see me say that in the chat? By the way, I said that. I literally, uh, yes, during the Blackwell's interview, Pullman confirmed the pronunciation is Gerard Bonvie. Uh, it's very French. It's very Amelie and Perry, as you, me, and our friend Pete would say. Uh, uh. But beyond that, I do have some other thoughts. Uh, Gerard Bonvie has the same energy as Marisa Coulter. Hardcore. Uh, right down to the domestic abuse of their creatures, which Pullman has also named that as domestic abuse, as exploration of the hyena demon. He's called this domestic abuse of your demon. The way Malcolm's mom and dad treat this man, it's this quiet, horrified kind of feeling, right? They're afraid. The rest of the bar is also afraid. And it reminds me of how those in the series with severed demons are treated. Foreign, horrifying, exiled. And this is, of course, because the hyena is named. Disconnected from the reality being presented when we look at Gerard Bonvie. It wouldn't surprise me if the hyena was severed from him. He's able to hurt his demon, right, heavily, and not hurt himself through that. So that, to me, sounds like his hyena may be severed from him. It's kind of implied, if you listen to our Northern Lights slash the Golden Compass episodes, we chatted a little about it during my very first read-through of the story for the first time, where I theorized that maybe... Marisa Coulter just might be severed from her demon due to the treatment of how she treats her demon, how her demon treats others, the metallic scent that happens when she's angry, maybe correlating to, you know, the metallic alloys, and her weird psycho personality in general that I love her for. It might be partially due to her being severed from her demon. The TV show has taken that as a little bit of canon as well. Proving me a very brilliant motherfucker, I digress. Marisa's introduced so warmly and brightly, right? We watch her through Lyra's plot, all that glitters is not gold. She's like, Lyra, I'm a scholar, and I know stuff, and I'm going to teach you stuff, and it's so bright, so fun. And we see that first twist of betrayal through her demon, right? Through the monkey Mm. in that personality when she sicks the monkey on Lyra, and... Pan, and we notice that personality and those traits and the tension rippling in the gorgeous fur of the demon, while Marisa just dazzles us with a smile. It's interesting that the man with the hyena is being introduced like this to us. Yeah, there's a lot there that is uh that's so similar to both of them and really evokes Mrs. Coulter, right? And I think Along with those similarities and what's so clearly, like, a parallel with them, I think there's a lot of other things that are interesting that he's discovering more about how demons work in relationship with their with their humans as bon vie. Fuck. So many new pronunciations to absorb <laughs> lately, Chloe. Um, but as bon vie contrasts with both of Lyra's parents, who are, you know, as as we've discovered, are both after her. Uh, not only what you said about um, 
their introduction, but also how Bon V is in many ways very different uh, from Marisa and her demon's portrayal, especially. Like, Marisa oozes seduction in different ways, but her demon does so well as also, you know, he's this glamorous golden-furred monkey, and golden tamarind monkeys are so cute and so pretty, and Marisa's really able to, right, hide a lot of those ugly, conniving parts about herself and her demon as well. Uh, her demon's able to hide, uh, and Bon V isn't. It's very much broadcast to everyone, and no one wants to be around him while people long to be near or to serve Marissa. But also, in a way, I feel like Bon V has aspects of him that are similar to Asriel, right? Like, Ralph and Malcolm describe Asriel as being impossible to resist, very charming. And he has this really strong demon, right, that is carnivorous, whereas, like, the snow leopard is a hunter, the hyena is more of a scavenger, but can hunt. Um, it, it almost feels like his hyena is, like, a dark version or something of Stelmaria in that sense. Or he is, especially coming on the heels of that chapter. That's a great point, especially when you consider how still Stelmaria is described as, right? Like oh, she's, yeah. she's described as being this like very statue-esque demon during this, and how no one knows what Asriel could really be thinking, right? And this man is described as just charming and offsetting. You meet him and you're like, wow, what a warm smile. But his demon is just disgusting in the corner. And yeah. I, listen, we've all met dogs who maybe share some of the traits with the hyena right have you met a dog that's like been making gross ass noises eating itself before i have yeah but they're just dogs exactly but you know what that's kind of (sighs) what i'm saying is you might say this is the dark version of stelmaria but i'm saying we should support the demon more you know yeah no i agree i agree i don't know what um I i don't feel like Pullman's scope here on the demon and like his whole like, oh, this man's so charming. It's the same shit I feel about Maurice's demon. I feel like Maurice's golden monkey gets a lot of hate that should be better directed at Maurice. just like the hyena gets a lot of hate that should be better directed at Gerard Bonvi. And maybe the hyena's not that bad after all. We should just be nice to the hyena and rehabilitate it. That's all. I just think it's interesting that it's so clearly telegraphed by the hyena, whereas the monkey's not. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, I I agree with that. And we'll talk about that in a bit when Hannah Ralph goes into her uh, description, her her own demon corner. But for now, Asta wants to politely fly and chat with the person's demon, but she's also like too frightened by it. So Malcolm stares curiously at the man, smiling in return, and they head upstairs, shutting the door and talking about whether Hannah will know who the man is or not. And he thinks that this man is way too obvious to be a spy. That's for sure. Yeah. He does his school homework, uh, which he can't focus on, and the next day he asks Hannah about the man and his demon. She had never heard of anyone who could have such a demon hurt in such a way, and he tells her about the peeing in the path. It's interesting that he tells her and no one else, um, which puzzles her even more. I, too, am puzzled. She and Malcolm break down the act like she would with the alethiometer, step by step, and Malcolm felt it was a contemptuous action that the demon did for him, personally, and because of where it was, the priory. And then she gives us a a demon corner. Yeah, she says that hyenas are a scavenger. They feed on carrion and dead bodies, and they kill prey themselves. She calls them disgusting, but useful. 
that they make a crying sound, but they mean it as laughter. And she says that's hypocritical. I love this because Hannah is breaking it down in a way bit by bit. She teaches him the invention versus discovery thing a little bit, and she gives him the alethiometer symbols, and she's teaching. She's starting it even, even here. Uh, in a way, she's very much Malcolm's Miss Honey, right, to his Matilda. Hmm. Not to say the Polsteads are uninterested. They're just, they're preoccupied. They're surviving. They're trying to keep an inn alive and keep a life for him and food on the table, and they have other things going on that they are preoccupied with, and Malcolm, he has a bored brain. He wants more. That is obvious. Malcolm wants more. It's very much the Miss Honey situation. Yes, absolutely. And that's a great connection. I I think that, like, Malcolm's parents are supportive. Like, my parents were supportive of my education. Like, they, you know, they're just not, like, big book readers, right? They can't support what Malcolm wants to do can't really always have those conversations. They're not like uninterested. They just like aren't able to do it. Um, Something that I think is strange about this description. I'm not sure that hypocritical is the right word or the one that I would think of in the context of the actions or, or even the description of a hyena or a crocodile, right? Like hyenas don't preach one thing morally and then go on to do the same thing. Right. And crocodiles don't, either like neither of them are like creatures really based in some sort of moral code and i think this because you know we, we, we have been talking about what hypocrisy looks like in characters and literature uh again in our song of ice and fire coverage and i just like don't really get it here like hyenas and crocodiles maybe you could assert that they symbolize or have to do with deceit they're deceitful like they're talking about crocodiles tears but yeah I didn't think about that. I don't know. I just don't know if that works for me, the word hypocritical there. Yeah, Um, I don't think it works at all, but I do think there is such a duality that's present, right, between the laughing and the crying and the switching of the two manners. Just because two things contrast each other doesn't mean they're hypocrisy also. Exactly. That's why I'm like, I don't know if this this was the right word. Maybe Hannah Ralph's not as good of a teacher. Anyway, so... Well, maybe that's the point, right? Because Malcolm is teaching her things that she even doesn't know as we go along. Or she's learning things from the youth and from that innocence that she might not have known prior to now. Uh, I mean, even the way he's describing the events of what's happened, right? He tells her that this man smiled and winked at him and no one else saw. I mean, these are really intimate things he's telling her about how he felt, as you mentioned, with the the peeing. Like, he, he has not told his parents. He hasn't told anyone. He doesn't feel comfortable telling anyone, which is weird because Hannah Ralph is, you know, this weirdo adult he just met randomly. And now he's, like, going over to her house and kind of lying about why. Uh, but no one else saw this whole image of Gérard Bonvie staring at him and smiling at him. And he'd feel yeah. guilty, but he, he thinks it felt nice. Asta comments that that demon just kept gnawing her bloody stuff, and Hannah's like, I wonder if this means that they're vulnerable, that if the demon lost another leg, they couldn't walk. Malcolm reminds her the man was perfectly fine. He's in two minds of all of this, too, right? Like, Malcolm's like... I don't feel sorry for the demon. Me over here. I feel sorry for the demon. Uh, But his dad had even said that man's a bad man, but wasn't going to elaborate on it. He just was like, he's a bad man. He's not coming here again. 
And his mom was like, keep away from that man. But they didn't say why. It was a feeling they had. And that's it. Yeah. And I mean, like, I get that. I absolutely get that as like an adult and having Mm -hmm. met more people than as a child and being able to kind of see that in people. But I do think that like, you know, you were saying you you felt sorry for the demon. And I'm like, not trying to rehabilitate some of the things that Bonville will Sorry, Bon V <laughs> will do in this book, um, per se. But it feels like it's an idea that's dropped in here. And maybe it's not, like, super explored. Maybe it'll be explored more in the next book. I don't know. Um, it, it is a little bit in how we see Bon V treat his demon, right? You were comparing it to Mrs. Coulter's treatment of her demon. But I think that idea of both laughing and crying being the same thing or masking the other is very interesting and sort of el- eliciting that sort of, like pathos for the, for the hyena demon so anyway um it's complex hannah says that she'll see what she can find out about all of this situation and they move on to discussing the books that she had given him this week he found the symbolic picture book very difficult and only comprehended it meant things can stand for other things i mean it's not wrong <laughs> That's that's a pretty good summary um, of, of what I assume is going on here. And and he says it's like a secret language. And I think it, it reminds me of earlier on in these three chapters, right? The focus on Lyra and Pan speaking to one another in their own secret little fabricated language. Um, it, it feels a lot like this, right? Like a, like a nod maybe towards their own ability to understand secret languages later on in life. We don't get a lot of a close look. Like, I love getting to know Ben and Asta as demons because we don't really get this close look and this close relationship about this secret language. But he and Asta even have it, right? Like, just a few pages yeah, ago, he was true. like, you need to be a snow owl. And she does not argue because she already knows. She's already in there. She's like, duh, I need to be a snow owl. I gotta fly ahead and tell you what's up. Uh, it's something really special about that, you know, soul person connection thing going on where you have a soul attached to you, I guess, or whatever. I don't know the feeling. No one (laughs) fucking knows the feeling. I don't know what it's like to have a soul in the year 2020. Seems gauche. (laughs) Hannah is so proud of Malcolm because he seemed to grasp all this theory she's teaching him pretty easy. And they need it for the alethiometer, right? This this theory of the symbols. No one can remember all the symbols. Next, Hannah asks Malcolm about the theorem of Pythagoras, which he knows. It's the square of the hypotenuse being equal to the sum of the squares of the other two sides. It's true every example Malcolm's ever tried. And Hannah's like, so does that mean it was true before you realized it was true? And he's like, what deep. the fuck? Deep. This is deep, so <laughs> buckle up. She explains. She's like, you didn't invent it, Malcolm. You discovered it. So now she relates this to the beehive symbol on the alethiometer. The beehive symbol means sweetness. Another meaning for it is light. He gets it. Honey for sweetness and candles are made from wax. Light. She asks Malcolm, so did the association between the items exist before we realized it? Or did it not exist until we realized it? Did we discover it or invent it? He thinks and he's like, this isn't the same. You cannot prove the theorem. You can see the connection, but you can't prove it. And she's like, fine, fine. So could we choose anything to represent sweetness and lightness? And he's like, no, there's a connection naturally with the beehive. It was a discovery. 
She's like, very good. Gives him another one. She says, if you can imagine another world where Pythagoras never existed, would your theory be true there, too? And then she changes it. She says, imagine it has people but no bees. How would they symbolize sweetness and lightness? He says the connection would be in their minds, but not physically there. If they can think about another world, then they can see a connection, even if no one else can see it. Hmm. 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 Deep. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> Theoretically, knowing these things, Hannah puts together then the final question of, we can't say whether the language of symbols was invented or discovered, but it looks like... And then Malcolm says... And finishes that sentence with, it was discovered. But it's still different than the theorem, because you can't prove it. It depends on people being there to see it. Malcolm's like, well, I still think it's a bit invented as well, because with no one to see it then, right? Why would it still exist? <sighs> this was so interesting to me, all of this. This idea being presented. Uh, and Hannah even comments on this. She says... At some point in this book, she basically kind of insinuates, wouldn't it be interesting to be able to read the alethiometer without the alethiometer? Hmm. I find that such an interesting concept, harnessing that power of it without using the instrument. So here we see her teaching Malcolm all of the theory that is behind that idea. But it's stuff we already have seen in his dark materials before. This isn't new, right? We see it through Lyra, especially with Mary Malone. She's able to pull shadow particles to the cave through the same method that Lyra would use with the alethiometer. Mary's able to copy this using the Yijing eventually and mm -hmm. in the angels that flock to the cave later. Most of this is done through negative capability, as we've discussed many, many times. I don't want to bore you all. You're probably experts of negative capability by now, but this whole conversation, the chicken and the egg, it reminds me of this idea. The matter is already there. It's been there for 30,000 or so years, right? It's how you use the matter, how you invoke the matter. The technique, the application of theory through instruments is what has mattered about the matter before. Because shadow particles have existed, as we've learned for that many years, we didn't invent them. We discovered them. So how can we perform this method but without an instrument? Interesting. It is interesting. I it, it, It's a question that it feels like they're coming down definitively on, but also not. I, I think that they are raising it as a question. It, it's a fun thought experiment going on here, and it raises a lot of different philosophical ideas in this conversation. Some of the ones that you brought up, and I don't think I'm even touching on all of them. Um, I'm just bringing up a couple ones, mm -hmm. like subjective idealism to an extent, right? Whether an object is real and that for it to be real, it has to be perceived by a mind. Um, and the connections, right, between sweetness and light and the bees. I'm going to give my hot take here, right? If there are no humans at all and only bees, then in my opinion, the connection, like, isn't there because who the fuck is making candles? <laughs> no one's making candles. So this is, like, a bullshit thing that you just connected. That's my that's my take. Um, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but that Some doesn't mean sweetness one... and, like, lightness doesn't exist, Aliana. It's just there would be different things. Right. The concept still exists. It just doesn't exist in that framework. You're very close-minded today. 
I I am. I just think like there were other. I mean, like why not another symbol that's more closely right along like the Madonna. That? It could be like the Virgin and the whore. Right. Oh, wait, but I'm also wanna... just like, why would we be like, yo, the B means light, mm-hmm. when we could just be like, the sun symbol <laughs> means light. light. There's literally a sun symbol. And I get it. I know that she's saying that it can mean both. Not that the alethiometer necessarily means it to mean both. And maybe they have different, like, connotations, right? The sun versus the candle. The candle being a small light lighting the way. I'm making shit up on behalf. I'm doing Philip Pullman's work for him right now. Um, (laughs) But I'm just like, (laughs) the sun's right there. (laughs) Anyway... Anyway, um, some of the other philosophical ideas that are brought up are, like, the platonic forms, which we've discussed, and again, not trying to tire y'all out on it, um, in our coverage of book one and that discussion of semiotics. And I think there's even a little bit of theology that's brought up in this discussion, right? Um, And I think that Marissa Coulter makes a great, even though all she did was make a single question about it, she made a great case for it in episode five, somehow, uh, of His Stark Material season two, but... (laughs) in terms of the theology with this philosophical questions here, like if there's an intrinsic meaning that's inherently linked with each of the symbols and the images, regardless of whether or not there's a person there in that world, like that means that there might be something else, some, some other external thing there somewhere that is perceiving it, right, in order to give it that meaning. So does that mean that there is an omniscient or omnipresent observer that is conferring meaning onto these symbols or, or these these objects. So it's a fascinating discussion. It's a lot of, uh, I think, what you were saying about the Blackwell's discussion, yeah. right? Where Philip Pullman talks about his love of discovery. I would even add that if there's an observer conferring this meaning, isn't the magisterium declaring what's important or wait, the uh, authority? That's an interesting I think it, there's an argument for both, right? Like, so right. It, the limitations of language, right? Mm-hmm. Of, you know, if someone controls what things mean, then that limits the ability to discuss certain ideas. Yeah, absolutely. This is the definitive definition of like the word. Like in 1984. Yeah. yeah. Malcolm can't tell anyone but Asta, but... Hannah's warm, comfortable living room with the comfy chairs and all the books. It and the feels, chocolate. And the chocolate. <laughs> yeah, it feels more like home than anywhere ever has. He's drowsy. Aww. Hannah's like, you worked very hard today. Of course you are. And he's like, this is work? He's like, wow. I want to see the alethiometer, Hannah. And she's like, you can't because it has to stay. <laughs> At the library, unfortunately. But you can have this picture of all of its symbols. It's a circle. It's not the same. It's not the same at all. It's a circle with 36 <laughs> divisions. I've seen many pictures of alethiometers. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. We've, we've studied alethiometers. What's the study of alethiometers? The alethiometerometer? We're there. Uh, <laughs> she, uh, she used to use this circle, though, herself, when she was first learning. And she's like, it'll teach you some memory tricks. And I'll teach Hmm. you more when we see each other next. The circle reminds him of his auras, his spangled ring, and she's intrigued by that. And she's like, this kind of sounds like a migraine aura. And she asks if he has headaches. He doesn't. And she's like, okay, well, 
we'll see. And he says he'll probably see it again sometime soon. So the Spangle and the Moon and Lyra, and I, I, I feel like there's something being drawn Mm-hmm. A connection being drawn between all those. I don't know what it is yet. I'm also going to say it's interesting that his connection with Spangle was that horned moon uh, line in that Milton verse. Because, Chloe, what's your first association with the term Spangle? My first association is A Midnight Summer's Dream with really? Moonshine. Well, it's not really the character Moonshine. It's a character playing Moonshine in Midnight Summer's Dream when they perform the play, uh, Thespis play. With the, the marriage that goes on, they name a character Moonshine. He uses almost huh. the exact same language of the horned moon and uh, of a lantern representing the horned moon, basically, Moonshine says. And it is total William Shakespeare, and I'm pretty sure that's where John Milton is getting it from. I do think so, yeah. Um, that's interesting. That blows my, uh, what I was getting at, out of the Sorry. water. It's okay. Don't ask me questions next time. No, I mean, like, (laughs) no, I think that's great. And I think that's a great connection that you brought up. Um, I wish you had, you should have kept it in the notes. And I'm glad that you said it and we still brought it in. Um, Because my, uh, because I think dreams and the Midsummer Night's Dream is definitely something that uh, plays into some of the stuff in the later part of this book. But I was thinking, like, Star Spangled Banner, you know, I think for many Americans, Mm. that's the our first touch point on the word spangle. Yeah, I didn't even think of that right? as far as spangled. But that well, makes that's sense because uh, that's because you're not a patriot and you're going to be sent to a re-education. Oh my god, sir. listen, thanks, you little... <laughs> listen, you little fucker, with your League of St. Alexander. I don't appreciate it, okay? Wow. Uh, Eliana wears a fucking badge, everyone. Jesus. <laughs> oh my god. Narc. Yeah, for Jesus. That is uh that was the story. Okay, you narc. Anyways, so <laughs> Hannah returns and she's like, by the way, did you like that book you read on the Silk Road? And he's like, It's the one place I want to go the most in the whole world. And Hannah says, Maybe one day you will go, Malcolm. Hmm. Hmm. We close out the chapter with that evening someone returns la belle sauvage to the trout inn and that is like how Uh you know shit's about to go down in the story right you're like la belle sauvage is back malcolm the protagonist is gonna do some stuff it is it's you're like that's the thing it's the thing it's the title of the book (laughs) (laughs) it's back aliana what the hell la belle sauvage chapters 9 through 11 that was it what a that book. was it. What a, a lot happens. It was a long ass three chapters. They were truly chapters. it was. You know, if there's one thing in the structure of the book I can say, and I don't want to be a bitch. I'm not trying to be an asshole. Pullman, I love the book. It is a, a favorite book of mine, honestly. La Belle Sauvage is probably one of my favorites of the entire all of it ever, because it's just so smart. It's just clever. I love it. It, it got me invested. I really loved it. It reminds me of you more than just the normal His Dark Materials, Eliana, because I read it on the way to your house once. Um, Aww. Yeah, I just think about it. It's it's a clever book, but... You meant me, not Philip Pullman. Yeah, I'm not... you. Yeah, not him. It's not about you right now, Philip. You wrote it, but... Uh, I just... I love the book. I love the story. I think these three chapters were so thick, and this is where it gets really 
good. I remember reading it and like I read these three chapters in a row and went, I have to keep going. Uh, this was where it started to really pick up for me, in my opinion. Hmm. I can see that. I can see that. It, it is. Like, things start really rolling after this. I mean, the League of St. Alexander is a big point, and, and Gerard Bonvie yeah. going back, as you said. Because, I mean, the whole time I'm, like, reading this, right, when I was reading it, I was like, when's the flood coming? <laughs> and now you have people talking more explicitly that are like, yo, the flood's coming. So. Soon enough, the waters will flow. Well, we are going to do a discussion today. It's been a little bit. This discussion will be covering thoughts about the Secret Commonwealth and La Belle Sauvage combined. So if you have not yet read the Secret Commonwealth, at least up to about 37% of the book, please tune out. I don't want to spoil you. It will not be too thorough past that. It should probably be about literally 37% of the first part of the book there. So Eliana, you're allowed to stay. Wow! <laughs> Eliana's gonna get dusty. Eliana, my first conceptual thing about dust right now is this is the first time we're getting strong mentions of the Levant and the Silk Road, uh, which is total secret commonwealth, right? Like, we know there are some yes. adventures that take place there, and this chapter really hammers it home about Malcolm's dream of seeing them. Absolutely. And, you know, you were talking about atlases with them, and we've been getting hints at that for a while from, like, Lyra's Oxford, the novella, with those pictures and, and some of the enticing towards that. So we get it with the Silk Road, and you were talking about last episode about the murder, right, on the Orient Express. Did I make that up? You no, you are. Right? You were correct. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, murder um, on the Orient Express is happening. Yes, so uh, you can see, you know, good for Malcolm. He gets, he gets to fulfill his childhood dream. There's a lot in there about Malcolm not only fulfilling that dream from his childhood, but also, like, busting out of that societal bubble, right? Uh, he did not want to be an inn owner. That's just not what he wanted. He, he wanted to explore. He wanted to travel. Yeah. He wanted to see things. He wanted to do things and help people and... I think that's really big that he doesn't get shoehorned into that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. That's true. And, you know, a couple of other things, right, uh, play into Malcolm's future. Yeah, what about this migraine aura? It has to be more, right? The first time I read it, I was like, uh, you have a portal in front of you, Malcolm <laughs> Polstead. You're gonna jump in the portal, right? I just, like, couldn't understand, like, what is happening, and I figured it'd be elaborated, and maybe it is, maybe it isn't, based on what you've allowed me to see here. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we see him, like, still looking at this, and what's so funny is, like, when he's grown up, people have just accepted that this happens, so what, they all just wait around for 20 minutes while Malcolm does his whole fucking thing? Yeah, strangely enough, so, like, he doesn't get a migraine. Right, like he gets right. the aura, no migraine. Normal people would get the migraine twenty minutes later and be fucking, you know, unable to process life or yeah. do things, which is like story of my life. But in this chapter specifically, it's interesting because it's juxtaposed against them reading the alethiometer symbols without the alethiometer. That's a huge mm. theme 
Even throughout the secret commonwealth, we get that unorthodox new way of reading the alethiometer. So his spangled eye kind of reminds me of some of the windows to the world that we get Will cutting open in the main series, and it seems to be connected to the new way of reading the alethiometer. We have a few quotes from the secret commonwealth about what it's like reading the alethiometer in this manner. Very unorthodox, experimental partly, the new way depends on abandoning the sort of single viewpoint perspective you have with the classical method. That's from Hannah's POV. We also get Olivier saying it puts a severe strain on the nerves. And then from Lyra, the classical method required the reader to frame a question by pointing each of the hands at a different symbol, thus defining precisely what it was they wanted to know. But with the new method, all three hands were pointed at a symbol chosen by the reader. And then, the reader had to abandon control and enter a state of passive vision where nothing was fixed and everything was equally possible. Lyra being able to see people while using this weird new method, specifically Olivier Bonvie, and possibly being able to use it or see Malcolm, maybe seeing Will, possibly, is a, a huge concept, right? But this scene, this part of the chapter really bore. It makes me wonder if this new method is just one step closer to maybe uncovering power of the alethiometer without using the alethiometer, right? Interesting. Or mastering dark matter. We know it's possible. We see it happen with the matter attaching itself to the cave in modern His Dark Materials times to communicate with Mary According to some of the logic and theory that we have discussed here before, most things are, right? They've already been. For many years, they have happened. They've existed. The nausea Lyra's experiencing using the new method, I mean, this new method of the alethiometer, to me, says that this is being discovered. This is not being invented. It's been done. It's just being discovered by people for the first time. Yeah. Could maybe they be staving off this nausea and this awful feeling with something? Like an oil, perhaps, to calm everything? Maybe a rose oil? Could Malcolm use rose oil to connect through his auras that he's still getting, even now in the secret commonwealth? Maybe to the spirit world wide web? Maybe communicate with Lyra while they're in the Levant? Or maybe could Will... Use the Mulefa pod oil to connect to the spirit world wide web. I'm just throwing out some ideas. These are just some thoughts. If Will did that, maybe he could see Lyra again. I don't know. If Malcolm looks at the spangle directly, it goes away. When he looks from the side, he sees it. It reminds me of specters. It reminds me of windows. Reminds me of a whole lot of stuff. And I feel like it could become important because it was not important in this book. At all. <laughs> Great. Good to know. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think it's interesting because, like, even some of the physical descriptions of Malcolm's first time experiencing it so- sound similar to reading the alethiometer, right, without the classical method in yeah. terms of the dizziness he experiences. Granted, that disappears later on, uh, it sounds like. Yeah, and he's just like, all right, I'm just going to ride this thing out do this thing um but in terms of the the sensations right his demon feeling far away seeing a lot of things far and wide um it it feels like a lot of the descriptions of what happens in the alethiometer 
And I think that there's something really pointed here about the reader having to abandon control and enter a state of passive vision where nothing was fixed and everything was equally possible. On one hand, it almost sounds very similar to the ne negative capability um, that, that Lyra and Will and Mary Malone rely on in order to communicate with Dust. But I guess different in that there is, uh, as I said... Nothing is fixed. Everything is equally possible, uh, which is very different from the method that's discussed here in terms of symbols having intrinsically fixed meanings, right? And here they're arguing against that. There's also, I think, like a that idea of everything is equally possible. You were talking about the spangled ring being a portal or a view into other worlds. And if, you know, we're going off the theory that every new dimension or every new world it has to do with a diversion or is created out of a diversion of worlds uh, or possibilities. Mm -hmm. If you go into a state where everything is possible, is that how you become able to see into every other worlds? I don't know. That's interesting, especially because there was a lot of talk in these few chapters of, like, understanding different viewpoints and being able to see from different yeah. places, different worlds. Malcolm has to learn to fit into a lot of places during this story as an 11-year-old spy. As we continue in The Secret Commonwealth, we see him start to master some of these adult mid-20s spying effects. You know, it's very natural to spy in your mid-20s or be a spy or like a girl that's a decade <laughs> younger than you. So these are some yeah. things that we will yeah. see moving forward. I mean, we'll see some of these Indeed. major themes for Malcolm and... I don't know, just watching him spy now does give you that build-up for what he's going to be like in a decade. Yeah, and and as you said, Bree's going to go in that exploration, especially as Philip Pullman says, he loves to explore and discover. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> well, these are some thick chapters. I'm very excited they to get are. into the middle of this book because, as I've said, I love this book. I love the story. I love the mythology that Pullman is starting to pull in when it comes to some of the secret commonwealth of fairies and creatures and etc. And I am so excited to finally share it with you, Eliana, and that you are getting through the secret commonwealth. I, I know you are because you can discuss things with me now, which is so exciting. And then I scream at you and I'm like, Chloe, why is this happening? Why is this book awful? Eliana says. I don't... I don't know, Eliana. No, there's some really good things. There are some really there good th things. No, there are. There are things, yeah. There are just some really shitty things, too. Well. Well. Ain't that just the way? That is the way. This is the way, according to Star War. And mm -hmm. thanks so that. much for listening to us this week. You know, we will be back in 2021. We're going to head on a very yes. hard hitting path to finish out La Belle Sauvage. So that we can get a head start on the Amber Spyglass in the face of Series 3. There will be more of that to come for you all, so stay tuned. Absolutely, and yes, we're going to see you all. Happy holidays and Happy New Year. But of course, we do have more Historic Materials content coming for you in the rest of 2020, right? We do still have our coverage of the television show and our Patreon episodes. Yes, this month, like we said, we will be covering a Patreon episode about the music of His Dark Materials with our friends from the Dust Podcast, Matt and Holly. So please make sure to tune in over at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. 
where patrons in the stranger tier and above, $5 and above tier, every month get a special episode. Every other month, it's His Dark Materials. Every other other month, it's A Song of Ice and Fire. And of course, as we said, uh, we, those are not our only guests this month. We are also going to cover the last episode of His Dark Materials Season 2 with Cam, aka Candid59, and we are very excited. I'm kind of sad that the series is ending. Um, we are going to close 2020 with a bang. Uh, but if you want to keep up with any of those episodes coming out, you know, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, all those good places. Yes, look us up, search it up. We're probably there. Thanks so much for listening. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. You can find us on Twitter and Gmail, too. Oh, yeah. forgot about them, but you know what? You'll find them. You'll find them. It's it's fine. Girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Girlsgonecanon on Twitter. You can't miss it. At I mean, you can if you add an extra N. Canon. One N in canon. C-A-N-O-N. You're doing I great, everyone. You. <laughs> Goodbye.